This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening to you or good day to you, wherever you might be. This is Radio Orbit. You're listening to it on KOPN 89.5 FM. Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. More than radio, it's community radio. It's your imagination station, and it's the home for Radio Orbit. Every Sunday morning, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. My name is Mike Hagan, and I'm your host every week on Radio Orbit. This week, no different 
And here we are on a freezing, freezing cold Sunday morning. Man, bitter cold out there, but actually maybe a little bit warmer actually right now than it was last night at this time. I'm just kind of guessing, but uh, boy, it was uh, pretty chilly when I rolled out of my two-hour nap and uh, out into the car to drive down here to the station. So anyway, hope you're keeping bundled up and warm tonight. And uh, hopefully you're inside someplace warm listening to this radio program right now. Thanks to Gail for a wonderful show, as always, playing some awesome music there on Heart and Soul. Gail's on the air every week before me for a couple of hours from midnight until 2 a.m., always setting things up nicely for this program. Uh, So anyway, Gail, hope you're staying warm out there and uh, get home and go get some sleep. And uh, everybody who's not home or not sleeping... Uh, stick around and listen to Radio Orbit tonight. We've got a great show coming up for you. I'm doing an interview a little bit later, airing an interview, actually, something that uh, uh, was recorded a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman whose name is Jonathan Miller Weisberger. Jonathan Miller Weisberger is an ethnobotanist and also the uh, steward of a botanical garden and uh, a retreat down on the Pacific Coast of Costa Rica, a place called Guaria de Osa, the Orchid of the Osa, just a wonderful, wonderful place down there in the equatorial Amazon in Central America. So anyway, I talked with uh, Jonathan a few weeks ago, and uh, he'll be on, uh, we'll be airing that interview in just, uh, well, I don't know, 45, 50 minutes or so, and uh, anybody who's interested in ethnobotany and uh, the relationship between indigenous peoples and plants and really the relationship between all people, all life on this planet and plants. Uh, You'll be interested in this program. It's pretty cool stuff. Jonathan is sort of uh, what we kind of consider a new ethnobotanist, somebody who practices practices what what some people are calling the new ethnobotany. And uh, Jonathan is a real forward-thinking young man, not a real... uh, uh, not very advanced in years, I should say, but uh, a real wise young man and a guy who's got some uh, real cool projects going on down there and some stuff that uh, that all of us could benefit from if we, uh, if we get to experience things like Jonathan is offering and also if we get to learn about the things that he's teaching about. So stick around for that. That's coming up in about uh, 45 minutes or so. Jonathan Miller-Weisberger, he's an ethnobotanist uh, down in Costa Rica. Uh, what else do we want to talk about before we get things going here? We'll do space weather in a few minutes. Um, uh, oh God! You know I got to tell you guys something. Um, my son, you hear me talk about my son once in a while on the air. Well, he's about 15, 16 months old now. Well, for the last couple months, one of the major words that's been a, uh, an addition to his vocabulary has been the word puppy. And he's been walking around our house for the last three months, going puppy, 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 puppy. Everything he sees that has legs is a puppy. And um, we actually have a cat, and he doesn't call her a puppy, uh, but basically everything else. And he's wanted a puppy so bad for the last couple months. Uh, so, uh, in any case, uh, this morning my wife and I, we bit the bullet, and uh, a friend of ours had a litter of uh, some wonderful little dogs, and we went out there today and uh, intentionally was only going to come home with one of those puppies, and uh, unfortunately, or fortunately for them, I'm not sure yet, uh, it's only been about 12 hours. Now, we actually came home with two of them, two little sisters, and they're both uh, just about eight weeks old. 
And they're the cutest little things. They're half, uh, half Labrador and half what's called a Gordon Setter. Uh, so they kind of look like labs, but they have some brown, red colors mixed in, and they kind of look like Rottweilers the way they're marked, one of them at least. Anyway, puppies are totally cool, and uh, we brought these two puppies home. My son was with us when we went out there to get them, and he's just ecstatic, and it's just a wild scene around the house right now. So uh, anybody, if, uh, uh, if you're looking for a wonderful little puppy there are six of these dogs left and uh, our friends are looking for good homes for them uh, so if you're interested in that uh, give me a buzz here at the station uh, 573-874-5676 and I'll set you up with a free puppy okay normally I'm giving away uh, things like CD-ROMs for cyberspaceorbit.com or uh, Fate Magazine subscriptions or uh, copies to books by people like Terrence McKenna or Dennis McKenna or uh, UFO framed photos. I'm always giving away things like that. Well, today we're going to change things a little bit and uh, sort of indirectly we're going to give away dogs. So anybody interested in wonderful little puppies, uh, they are incredible dogs and they're looking for good homes and I've got a couple of them myself and I'd love to see these other uh, six little girls uh, find them. Um, find nice people to take care of them and nice places to live. So if you're interested in that, uh, give me a buzz, like I said, uh, 573-874-5676, or you can always email me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com, or you can always go to the website, www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. There's just one O in the middle there for the website. And uh, send me a note, give me a call, whatever. If you're interested in one of these dogs, I'll, uh, I'll give you the information, okay? I'll also give you a, uh, uh, I'll also give you one of those other things that I talked about. I don't know what it'll be, but I'll give you something else, okay? Okay, um, speaking of email, thank you for the nice emails that you all send me. Uh, I got a few nice emails last week after the program, and I appreciate it. And uh, hello to everybody out there listening on the web. Um, I'm really pleased that uh, people are starting to pick up on the fact that the archives are out there on the website, and... And uh, that uh, regardless of when you want to listen to this program, whether you're up in the middle of the night or whether you want to listen to it in the middle of the day or whatever, you can do that by going to the website at radioorbit.com and going to the archives page. And if you go there, you just uh, uh, look back sequentially, and every program that we've ever done uh, will be there on the web, God willing, as long as my server is still up. And uh, you guys can download those and listen to them, and uh, they're, uh, they're free and available to everybody out there. So I hope you take advantage of that. There's some great stuff on there, uh, on the web, and there's some real, uh, uh, there's some treasures of information that are hidden inside some of those interviews that are backed up now going on six months. So, all right. Okay, that's that. Uh, tonight, as I said, Jonathan Miller Weisberger um, will be talking about nature and uh, the botanical garden that he runs there, a retreat in uh, Central Pacific, Costa Rica. And uh, let's see, we'll do space weather again in just a minute. Let me talk about, quick, uh, quickly just go over some guests that are coming up. As uh, most of you know, I've been talking about Paul LaViolette, Dr. Paul LaViolette. I'm very excited to air this interview. I've had it uh, sitting here in the computer for quite a while, been waiting for the right time to do it, uh, and now is that time. So next week we'll be airing uh, a two-hour interview with Dr. Paul LaViolette, a incredible physicist, an astrophysicist, uh, Ph.D. from uh, Oregon State University and uh, MBA from Johns Hopkins and uh, a uh, resume and 
list of publications and all the major science publications that, that just goes on and on and on. Anyway, uh, Dr. Laviolette is a real, uh, a real star. No pun intended. Uh, uh, no pun intended uh, out there. He is a, a guy who's doing some incredible work and actually having sort of a difficult time right now uh, getting some of his work looked at because uh, uh, because it is pretty striking and it does uh, it does make some waves in some of the conventional established theories and uh, that doesn't always bode well for some of these guys. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Laviolette about all of these things that comes up next week. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Laviolette and I uh, touch on. <clears throat> is the idea of something that he calls electrogravitics. And uh, what that means is really the relationship between electricity and gravity. And uh, for a long time that has been denied or ignored in the scientific community that there was any relationship between electricity and gravity. But uh, anybody worth their salt these days realizes that that's not true. And uh, there is a tremendous uh, relationship between those two physical properties and, uh, and uh, not only a tremendous relationship, but some tremendous potential that comes out of that relationship. So we'll be talking to Dr. LaViolette a little bit about that in the interview that I did with him. Um, but uh, we're going to really get into that big time the following week with Nick Cook. And Nick Cook is the former aerospace editor of Jane's Defense Weekly, one of the preeminent military technology uh, publications in the world, and uh, uh, Nick Cook was the aerospace editor of that particular publication for a long, long time. He's a he's an insider when it comes to military technology. He's a big time insider when it comes to aerospace technology. He has contacts and friends throughout the aerospace community, uh, throughout the planet. Nick is actually based in the UK, and we'll be doing that interview live uh, from London uh, with Nick and. Uh, that one's going to be a great show. So that's two weeks from today. Other than that, we've got a lot of other things coming up. I've mentioned Rupert Sheldrake, Dr. Michael Heisen, uh, the marine biologist out in Hawaii. We'll be talking to Dr. Heisen again here pretty soon. Uh, I just made a uh, connection with a guy whose name is Dr. Rick Strassman. Uh, Dr. Strassman wrote a book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Uh, DMT, of course, a, uh, a, a psychoactive substance that's found in uh, certain plants and certain uh, medicinal concoctions that are prepared by some of these indigenous people that we're going to actually talk about tonight with, uh, with, um, uh, with Mr. Weisberger. Uh, anyway, DMT, the spirit molecule, really advances on some of the earlier work by people like Timothy Leary and Dennis McKenna and Terrence McKenna. And uh, uh, Dr. Strassman really takes it into the laboratory, though, and into the, uh, into the scientific realm and looks at what this compound is really capable of doing. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Rick Strassman about that. Not sure exactly when. We've got, we made contact. He agreed to do an interview. We just have to schedule that now. Uh, so we'll be doing that sometime in the next month or two. And uh, uh, one other thing that I will add, I told you that uh, Dr. LaViolette was having some difficulty uh, with uh, regard to the publication of some of his current theories. Uh, in fact, he feels that he's been blacklisted by the uh, National Archive, the physics archive that's held at Cornell University. And in fact, there are a number of scientists around the planet uh, that feel that they're uh, in some way, shape, or form being censored or suppressed because of what they're saying or how they're saying it. And uh, this is not something that's new. This is something that goes on in science. 
just as it goes on in religion, just as it goes on in politics, just as it goes on in education, <clears throat> just as it goes on in many places. There are, uh, there are people on the cutting edge of some of these technologies and some of these fields of endeavor, some of these research areas that don't get a fair shake. And uh, I'm going to do my best to see that they do. So Dr. Laviolette has put me in touch with a number of other uh, physicists that are involved in uh, similar situations as his. And we'll be talking to a lot of those guys over the next six months or so. I'm going to really make that one of the themes of the program this year, along with some of the other things that we talk about frequently, like the natural world and the connection between humans and nature and how that connection has been lost or broken or splintered in many cases and how it must be reestablished. That's one of the things that we talk about very frequently on this program. Uh, but we're also going to talk a lot this year about science and about suppression in science and about censorship and about the advancement of knowledge and how that really happens. And in a time when knowledge and information are exploding, exploding literally in front of our eyes and ears uh, through the Internet and... Uh, and through other means of communication. Now more than ever, we have to make sure that, uh, uh, that, uh, that voices are heard, especially qualified voices. Uh, these people that we're going to be talking to, uh, they're all PhDs, they're all published, they're all the right type of uh, uh, individual when it comes to science. And that is primarily why they're having such a difficult time. People like me... People like me who have bachelor's degrees in mathematics and don't know a whole lot other than what they've learned on their own, that don't have the particular uh, abbreviations and letters at the end of their name, people like me can be easily discounted, can be easily debunked, can be easily dismissed out of hand when we talk crazy. However, people like Dr. LaViolette and some of these other, pe uh, some of these other folks that, uh, uh, that Paul has put me in contact with, these are folks that have all the right credentials. They have the PhDs at the end of their names. They have the education and the experience. They have uh, the um, historical backgrounds of publications in major peer-reviewed journals and these sorts of things. Well, those types of guys aren't so easily discounted as I. They're not so easily dismissed. And so when they, when they say things or they do work that uh, rocks the boat, that makes waves like we talked about earlier, well, oftentimes they do have trouble. And there's plenty of historical precedent uh, for, uh, for these things. Uh, you can go all the way back to uh, uh, Johannes Kepler and Copernicus and uh, uh, Ptolemy, and certainly Galileo, and many others along the line, uh, all the way up to the present day. So keep that in mind, and uh, all that stuff coming up uh, in the next few months, okay? All right, uh, real quick, uh, let's do email address one more time, orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com, website, www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O, R bit.com and uh, the phone number here uh, in the studio is area code 573-874-5676 and uh, if you are 
not in the 573 area code, you can also call me here in the studio at 1-800-895-5676. That's 1-800-895-KOPN. All right. Uh, okay, cool. Let's play some music here, get things going a little bit. We'll be back with space weather, and there is some wild stuff happening in space weather. It's going to be... Uh, uh, Got a lot to talk about here, so let's get right to it here. This is a band that's called Auto Lux. The song is called Here Comes Everybody, and uh, Radio Orbit will be right back in just a minute, and we'll do what we usually do. Take it easy. Back in a few minutes, Auto Lux, Radio Orbit, KOPN.
Auto Lux on KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, and it's Sunday morning, the 16th of January, and here we are. Let's do space weather real fast. Got a lot of stuff to get in in this uh, first hour before we do that interview with Jonathan Weisberger. So here we go. Um, big, big X-Class flare again, you guys, this morning. Uh, about 20 hours ago or so now, an X-class flare measuring about X2 on the scale. Uh, regardless, uh, even though it's low on the X-class scale, any X-class flare is a giant flare. And uh, there is a sunspot right now, a group of sunspots, uh, that is identified as a sunspot group 720 is huge. It is one of the biggest sunspots that I've seen since October of 2003 when we had the largest solar flare ever recorded, which, uh, well, just blew it off the scales. Uh, Everybody uh, just estimated how large it was. It it went off of the X-class scale, um, and uh, we kind of joked around and called it a Y-class flare. Uh, This was about a year and four months ago. Uh, when that happened. Anyway, that particular event resulted from a sunspot that is not much different from this one that I'm talking about right now. This is sunspot area 720, and it's right on the front side of the disk right now. If you go to uh, the SOHO website, uh, Solar and uh, Heliospheric Observatory, uh, you can look at that through the EIT filters, and you can see it for yourself. Um, Or... uh, the best thing to do for all this stuff is just go over to cyberspaceorbit.com, go over to Kent's website, and he follows this stuff so closely and, uh, and so thoroughly that uh, you can get to all these other places from there. So when it comes to uh, this sort of uh, thing, yeah, Kent's website is a great sort of base of operations, and you can go to a lot of other places from there. So uh, check it out at cyberspaceorbit.com. But anyway... Uh, a big giant sunspot that's just launching flares. There's certainly potential for more of these large flares uh, as as this uh, uh, situation evolves, so we'll have to keep our eye on it. But uh, if one of those X-class flares, a big one, uh, is um, directed at Earth, well, then uh, then we could have some real interesting, uh, interesting things uh, start to occur. And don't forget, all of these things are connected, and the Uh, electromagnetic activity of the sun, which is what we are seeing when we see solar flares, uh, that is also uh, directly connected to the the, uh, magnetic field of the earth. And the magnetic field of the earth is directly related to things like earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis and uh, these things that we talk about pretty often. So, uh, and it's also uh, directly related to the weather. There's, uh, although it doesn't take a genius, it's sort of intuitive. Uh, it's intuitive to assume that the sun uh, has a great influence on the weather here on planet Earth. But for whatever reason, uh, intuition uh, isn't good enough, and science uh, is now uh, coming forward as well and acknowledging uh, the obvious connection between the sun and the climate here on planet Earth. My own personal opinion on uh, uh, global warming uh, as a little tangent is that uh, global warming, first of all, is a, is, is a, is a misrepresentation. Uh, there are certainly areas of the globe that are warming. Uh, there are areas of the globe that are also cooling as well. 
Um, so I think that it's more global change uh, is more of a general and a better description of what's happening on this planet, but the planet does seem to be in flux. There does seem to be a lot happening right now. You know, um, it's interesting if you go back in the uh, historical record, the paleontological record, the archaeological record, and some people uh, give this uh, more uh, credence than others. Um, of course, like everything else, these are theories, but uh, the main... Uh, one of the... One, one of the uh, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, one of the distinguishing factors about human evolution and history on this planet is that the last 10 million years have been the most violent, the most uh, seen the most upheaval and the most change of the last 100 million years. Now, of the last 10 million years, the last 1 million years has been the most violent and dynamic of those. Out of the last million years, the last 100,000 or so has been even more violent yet. So, uh, what of that? Uh, is this a trend? Is, uh, is the Earth uh, becoming more unstable? Or is it just a, a progression to something else? Uh, in any case, uh, the Earth is a dynamic, changing thing, and uh, uh, all of these things affect uh, one another. So the solar activity is directly affected to all these things that we're seeing happening down here on the planet uh, to, to a lesser or greater degree, and you can argue what that degree is. Uh, but certainly the sun is one of the primary uh, factors and one of the primary influences on life here on planet Earth. So the sun, uh, as we've been saying for a long time, is uh, really uh, really acting up, okay? All right, so we'll keep our eye on flares and stuff. Uh, one more time, if you want to follow this stuff in between radio orbit broadcasts, a lot can happen in a week. In fact, so much can happen in a week that <clears throat> I'm sitting here looking at my... Uh, my list of things to talk about and there's no way I'm gonna get to them there's no way I'm gonna get to them all because there's just too much happening so uh, I do the best that I can and I'm trying to pull out the stories that I think are the most important and the most relevant uh, to tell you guys but there's so much more going on that I can't cover I wish I could do this show every night and uh, I think there's that much material that I could probably do a show like this every night or at least a few times a week and um, uh, and still have plenty to talk about. So uh, so go over to Kent's website or go to my website, radioorbit.com or cyberspaceorbit.com, and uh, uh, you'll see all the things that I'm going to be talking about tonight, but you'll also see a lot of other things uh, that I won't probably have the time to get to. And like I say, just because I can't get to it uh, doesn't mean it's not happening. doesn't mean there's not a lot of exciting things going on out there, and there really are. Okay? All right, and feel free to email me ever uh, with questions about any of this stuff as well, okay? All right, uh, so we've got lots of activity going on in the sun. Don't stare at it or, or stare at it if you like. I stare at the sun sometimes, and you can actually see these sunspots. This one in particular, 720, you'll be able to see it. Um, but uh, the medical community advises that you don't look directly at the sun, that it will damage your eyes, and uh, take that for what it's worth. And... Uh, uh, do what you want, okay? All right, uh, let's see. Solar wind speed. I, I just wanted to mention this. The solar wind's kicking up about 530 kilometers a second. That's pretty fast, and it's probably going to increase. And, uh, again, that's a factor that affects the magnetic field here on the Earth. Okay, uh, Saturn. Uh, we're going to be talking about Saturn for a few minutes here. Um, there is a 
well, first of all, Saturn is pretty close to the Earth right now, as close as we get to it. It's about 750 million miles away, but uh, but that's about as close as we ever get to that ringed planet. Uh, so uh, if you go outside and look to the east, uh, sometime in the evening, between 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, uh, it'll be pretty easy to find. Saturn will be easy to find. It'll be, it'll be uh, next to uh, the constellation, uh, or it'll be in the constellation of Gemini, actually. And there are two stars in particular in the constellation of Gemini, one called Castor and the other called Pollux. And uh, uh, the, um, the planet Saturn will be right up there next to, uh, right up there next to Castor. Uh, and if you have it, you'll be able to see it with the naked eye. Obviously, it'll look like a bright star. Uh, but uh, if you have a telescope, uh, go out there and point it at Saturn, and you'll even get to see the moons uh, of Saturn, and you'll get to see the rings. And uh, speaking of the moons, there is a NASA probe that is called Huygens, or Huygens. And uh, uh, this probe was launched about five or six years ago, and it was uh, connected to the Cassini probe. And I'm just taking a sip of water there. Uh, sorry for the pause. But uh, anyway, Huygens was uh, launched from the Cassini probe and actually descended through the atmosphere of Titan. Titan is the largest moon of Saturn, and it has an atmosphere and all kinds of things going on there. Well, anyway, this probe just yesterday dropped down through the atmosphere of Titan and is taking pictures and sending back data and uh, as always I can't be uh, totally confident that what we're seeing is the original data maybe it's being scrubbed maybe it's not who knows regardless uh, it's a pretty interesting event that's going on right now and again uh, go down to uh, cyberspaceorbit.com and uh, and uh, you can check out all of the coverage of the Huygens probe and what's going on in and around Saturn's moon Titan very very interesting stuff there uh, and in fact uh, talk of life even in some circles uh, talk of the possibility of life uh, the possibility of water there have been some real interesting images that have already come back from this probe uh, that look like shoreline and uh, uh, I've seen a couple of images that looks like there's some sort of liquid on the lens of the camera droplets of some sort water I don't know uh, but uh, liquids in general um, uh, to me uh, are indicative of a condition that is required for life and not necessarily water. I think liquid in general is something that would probably be required. Um, <clears throat> but that's just my own personal opinion. So anyway, get on the web. Go uh, check this stuff out. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating and amazing that, uh, you know, that we can do this if we want. On the one hand, you can hop on the web and in 10 seconds you can be looking at uh, a live picture of the sun and seeing these sunspots that I talk about all the time and watching solar flares as they happen and coronal mass ejections as they hurl solar material millions of miles into space out in every conceivable direction and uh, it's just amazing that we can watch this uh, with our eyes right now and in the same manner we can go see these almost live images that are coming back from Saturn, a place that's nearly a billion miles away from us, and we can see images of what that world looks like. And uh, uh, just the, uh, the ability 
to do that, to have that opportunity now, and it's available to everybody, even if you don't have a computer, go to the library. Um, this information is out there, and uh, it's really the whole world just opening up to us and uh, beyond the world. And I hope people take advantage of it, and I hope you go to places like my website and uh, Kent's website and, uh, and check this stuff out because it really is fascinating, and it really, it really does change your view of things, too. Sometimes it really helps to broaden your... Uh, your view and your uh, your worldview and your idea of uh, of what reality is, you know. So anyway, enough of my soapbox. I'll get back to on that in just a few minutes, like I always do. Um, so lots going on in space. Uh, potentially hazardous asteroids. Nothing to talk about except the ones that we don't know about. And um, I had a story here, sort of an in-depth story about the search for life on Titan and I was going to read that but it comes from the New York Times so suffice to say that uh, there are serious scientists that are talking about this uh, this uh, uh, gentleman in particular is named Dr. Benner and uh, uh, Dr. Benner is looking for life on Titan I won't read a whole lot about that story because we don't have a whole lot of time but uh, just to let you know that this is really going on. A guy named Dr. Stephen Benner uh, is uh, one of the many people that's involved in this project uh, trying to look for life on Titan. And one of the big questions is how do you look for it? Because it might look a lot different than what we assume it looks like. Uh, so that's one of the things that that article talks about. Um, there's another article here that I wanted to mention. We talked last week about India and the fact that in India there was all kinds of rumor and talk in the major newspapers of India about UFOs and extraterrestrial contact and this sort of idea. Well, um, there's more of that in the news. There's more of the Indian story. that I'm not going to go into it, but it is continuing. So if you're interested in that, just get on the web as... I always say, go to one of your search engines and put in UFOs in India or something like that, and you'll probably come up with the latest stories, okay? Uh, also, there is a, uh, an article that came out uh, talking about the likelihood of uh, ET visitation here on Earth. And I'm going to read just a quick clip of this. It says uh, here, uh, ET visitors, scientists see high likelihood by Leonard David. Decades ago, it was physicist Enrico Fermi who pondered the issue of extraterrestrial civilizations with fellow theories over lunch, generating the famous quip, where are they? That question later became central to debates about the cosmological uh, census count of other star folk and possible extraterrestrial visitors from afar. And um, Fermi's paradox basically said that uh, if they were out there, they'd be here. They would have the technology uh, to visit us. And so if they could visit us, why wouldn't they? Well, this article basically just goes on to say, maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe all the stories of UFOs that have been told by people for 50 years now, and literally hundreds of years, actually, the stories of extraterrestrial contact and beings from other places goes back thousands of years and is replete throughout human history if you look deeply into it. So anyway, talking about that sort of stuff in the news, and I like to see it, it means people's minds are opening a little bit more, regardless of whether it's a reality or not. Uh, the possibilities and the probabilities are uh, alone, uh, things that, again, broaden your wor worldview. 
Um, okay, before we get to this interview with Jonathan Miller Weisberger, um, I'm going to talk about Earth changes a little bit. I'm going to talk about Mother Earth and what's happening <clears throat> on the planet right now. It seems, as we said earlier, that the planet is in flux. There's a lot of things that are changing right now. And in fact, since the earthquake in Indonesia and the resulting tsunami, uh, the Earth really has uh, been in a state of uh, high anxiety, as it were. Lots and lots of 5 and 6.0 earthquakes. There was a 6.8 magnitude quake in the mid-Atlantic ridge just a couple of days ago. I'll tell you why that's significant in just a few minutes. We'll be back talking about earth changes. Then uh, Jonathan Miller Weisberger and uh, we'll be uh, back after this. Radio Orbit. This is Midnight Radio. Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Back in a minute.
Todd and the Monsters. That's Midnight Radio from the CD of the same name. And <clears throat> Todd and the guys coming to town doing a show here at the Blue Note, I think, uh, February 13th, I want to say. It's a Sunday night. And uh, if you've never caught Big Head Todd and the Monsters, great, great live show. Great guys. Uh, they're Colorado folks. And. Um, I uh, knew those guys in my previous life back there in Colorado, and hopefully we'll be uh, uh, getting together with them actually um, when they come to town here. So anyway, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, great little three-piece band from uh, the Denver area, Boulder, Colorado, actually, and uh, they'll be doing a Blue Note show on uh, the 13th of February, and that's not even a KOPN show. We're not involved in that show, uh, but uh, going to be a great show nonetheless. Uh, with uh, There are some great shows coming up, though, uh, that KOPN is going to be involved with, too, so uh, stick around and listen uh, I listen for those. <clears throat> and in fact, I'm not supposed to say that they're going to be great. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, they're going to be there. So, all right. Um, I want to uh, set up this interview with uh, Jonathan Weisberger a little bit. Uh, one of the topics that him and I touch on quite a bit that was woven throughout the interview is just this idea of uh, the natural world and the connection to it. And um, I want to talk a little bit about that right now before we go to that interview. As I said before the break, uh, the earth does seem to be in a little bit of a fluctuating situation right now, uh, and we've been watching it pretty closely, and anybody who watches uh, 
earthquake and volcano uh, activity uh, will no doubt tell you that over the last three weeks, there's been a significant, uh, substantial rise in the level of that activity worldwide. And uh, that's why I mentioned uh, the things that I'm going to mention right now, okay? Um, on the 12th of January, there were three volcanoes that erupted simultaneously in Guatemala. The volcanoes Pacaya, Santa Maria, and Fuego uh, all began to erupt and toss out ash and lava, forced evacuations. It's been over 30 years uh, since uh, these three volcanoes were active at the same time. Um, uh, in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean, there was a 6.8 uh, Richter earthquake, 6.8 uh, magnitude on the Richter scale, in what, an area of the Atlantic Ocean called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And again, this is a, one of the seams in the Earth, <coughs> in the Earth's crust, one of the joints where these tectonic plates meet and move. And uh, a 6.8 is a significant quake. And if you remember. Uh, in Indonesia, there was an 8.1 uh, that uh, precursed the 9.0 that created the tsunami that was so devastating. Uh, that uh, 8.1 proceeded by a couple of three days. So we're watching the Atlantic Ridge now pretty closely. And again, just watching. I don't claim to have any uh, special understanding of this stuff uh, more than you. All I'm doing is watching. And uh, I'm just sort of an observer. Uh, but I'd just like to tell you guys what I'm seeing, okay? Um, Here's another story from Scotland. I just want to throw some random stories out there. There are so many that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't begin to list them all, but this one sort of struck me. Uh, thousands are cut off in Scotland as the nation is ground to a halt. Scotland was brought to, the entire nation of Scotland was brought to a standstill yesterday after the hurricane from hell. More than 25,000 homes are still without power as of last night as the worst storms in decades hit the country. Many of those affected were also left without water and supplies. Um, uh, anyway, it goes on and on. And rather than go off and just uh, list these stories one after another, I thought that I would do something else. Um, and, oh, here's one other one that I'll read, actually. This one was actually kind of funny. Uh, this is the, from the geniuses over there at Los Alamos National Lab that were paying... Uh, millions of dollars to develop nuclear weapons and all these other things. This guy says, uh, from Los Alamos, a meteor could cause a big tsunami. Hey, whoa, genius guy. Look at the big brain on the Los Alamos scientist. While most tsunamis are caused by earthquakes or landslides, the potential for an asteroid-caused <laughs> asteroid tsunami remains a threat that the world should watch out for said Galen Gisler, a Los Alamos National Laboratory scientist. Well, there's another uh, master of the obvious. But yes, if a big rock smashes into the planet, it will be just as devastating if it hits the water, maybe more so uh, than if it hit uh, on dry land. Either way, not a good, uh, not a good scenario. All right? Anyway, so... Um, with that, uh, I'd like to read one other thing, and it may take a few minutes to, to do this. Um, let me tell you what it is. A couple of years ago, um, I was fortunate enough to be at an elders gathering in Colorado with uh, a group of indigenous elders from many different cultures 
lots of people from the Lakota Nation. I have a, a particular connection to the Lakota people. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, Jim Beard, uh, who's a friend of mine, uh, uh, will be on the air here with me uh, not too long from now. I forgot to mention him when we were talking about upcoming guests, but um, he's a wonderful Native American uh, gentleman, Jim Beard, and he'll be on the air here talking to us in a couple of months, maybe this month sometime, actually. So, anyway, um, I was at this gathering, and I was real fortunate uh, to be there. And this was in 2002, in April. And there was a man there who was a wisdom keeper, an elder, a grandfather of the Hopi. And uh, his name is uh, Grandfather Martin Kiyashiwama. And uh, Grandfather Martin is an old man and a wise man. And he gave a presentation at this particular gathering that I was at. And I was blown away by it, uh, by what he said. Um, and after the gathering, I went on my way, and his words sort of stuck with me. But, uh, you know, as life goes on, you forget and move along and everything. But it's always sort of been back there in the back of my mind. Well, anyway, a couple of weeks after the gathering, <clears throat> I actually volunteered and worked at the thing. And so I met a lot of people that were attending it. And uh, one of the women who attended it had actually recorded the converse, or the uh, presentation from Grandfather Martin. And she went back to California and actually transcribed it word for word, uh, what this old Hopi elder had to say. And it was actually, he spoke in Hopi. Uh, he spoke in his native language, and then it was translated by his son, uh, who stood there next to him, and his son translated uh, as he spoke. And anyway, um, this wonderful woman... Uh, transcribed it all and emailed it to me just a couple of weeks after the event itself. This was a couple of years ago. Three years ago now. Anyway, that thing's been sitting in my computer for three years and I pretty much had forgotten it was there. Well, I was having a conversation online uh, with a friend of mine um, and uh, he mentioned these volcanoes in Guatemala that had all erupted simultaneously just a couple days ago and in the back of my mind it triggered uh, the talk that grandfather uh, grandfather Martin had given uh, so I'm gonna read that here in its entirety um, and it shouldn't take more than five or ten minutes or so and I hope you all appreciate it and it's difficult to read uh, it's it's not the easiest thing for me to read because it, it really tugs at some of my strings <clears throat> so I'll do my best to get through this uh, in a reasonable manner, um, but I want you to understand how special it is, and I speak these words with humility and respect and honor for my grandfather, Grandfather Martin, who shared these words with us, and I was fortunate enough, uh, enough to be in his presence when he spoke them, and... Um, and I know that he wanted us to share these words with other people. Whew. So uh, with that, I'm going to do that. This is Hopi Teachings from Grandfather Martin Giwashima. Uh, this was um, presented on April 27th of 2002. It was translated by Grandfather Martin's son, Emery Holmes. And it was transcribed by the wonderful Harriet Natsuyama. Thank you, Harriet. I appreciate it. By the way, let's do uh, station ID real fast. Uh, you're listening to KOPN 89.5 FM, and this is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. 
These are teachings from long ago. I learned this long ago. It took time to understand. The words are from elders speaking into the future. They talked about what is happening around us, where this is taking us. They foretold. Volcanoes asleep will awaken. Fissures like fingers will extend north, south, east and west. Polar caps will melt and build up the waters. Mother Earth will get angry. Such events have taken place before. I am afraid for people who have disrespect for Mother Earth, for nature, and for one another. This will take many lives, and we will see around us wars, starvation, and sickness. All these events were foretold to happen all at once. To me, but there will be a chain of events. All these things are connected to beliefs and to teachings. We have ignored them. It will happen. We are now waiting for the time of purification, a time of endless wars. With this, I am asking you to watch yourselves, to take care for one another. It will be all over. It will be everywhere, and it will reach us here also. Be careful with your lives. These are some of the things taught. We should watch our food. We should watch out for ourselves with planting of fruits and vegetables. We are uncertain of weather and sudden changes. We don't know if corn will grow and then freeze. We are trying to go along with these teachings, but there are outside interference in things. We are starting to quarrel. We disagree. These are teachings for us, for our beliefs. We are not pushing you to step on this path. It's a choice we must all make for ourselves. We talked for so long to so many people everywhere, and it's a choice from your heart. So because of these teachings and our beliefs, it's up to the individual. At the end, when you have made a choice of your path, if you follow my path, and it's not the right one, the not, not the right path, the right choice, arguments will begin. I'm trying to avoid this. They say arguments will arise, and arguments are not the answer. From all the talk here, we should unite as one. Our teachings may differ. Only when it is right and proper will they be one. They are not one right now. This is a critical time. Choices should have been made much earlier. It's already too late. Spirit must believe in your heart. Not overnight. It takes a long time. Food becomes scarce. We cannot eat money. Watch your food. Money will become obsolete. Starvation comes again. From teachings and beliefs, we know how to take care of that. But we forgot. We ignored how and what to ceremony and, and, what and how to remedy it. With these teachings also comes about economical things like running water and electricity. These things are what the control is all about. When these things come in, that will also destroy us. Natural disasters, electrical storms will take out homes and they will burn. The water system, the sewer systems, we have been fighting from encroachment onto our homeland, but many are for that. And yes, there are some good, but in it disadvantages also. There are a lot of things yet to happen, still waiting to happen. We have been to many gatherings, but when the time comes, all will start removing necessities. We know that there are a lot of things that are not being done right. We are a part of a group 
that are working toward helping so that things will not be as horrible. We are searching for someone to stand up strong, to stand up against these things. No matter the age, no matter the race, it may well be a child. Because what our elders ta talked about is that one person is enough. One person is enough. If we find two, that is a lot. Three is too many. Emery adds, one person can make a difference. With this, we are still in search of that one, two, three. Whatever strength and knowledge we have, whatever we still have left within us, that person will be the receiving end of it. We will give all our power to that person. That person will become our leader, the one we shall look toward. The same thing is true that different countries are coming together to help one another. We are working on this, for everything will come to one at the end. Wars taking place are part of the purification, depleting the population. Whoever is left will come together then and become one. Teachings become one. Understanding and language become one. Every morning we pray. It will be our prayers that make a difference. Individual prayers for ourselves. Each person thinks for themselves. I encourage you to make prayers every day. When you make prayers, when your prayers are strong enough, your own homeland will remain standing like a mesa. So we know there are spirits watching over us everywhere and in certain areas. Many don't have belief. Many say there is only one God, but there are other spirits. My experience tells the truth. There are sacred areas everywhere. There are spirits living there. So I'm asking you to keep your prayers up. One day you'll see something like a spirit. If you turn your face and look back, it will be gone. It will make you believe even more. These are the beliefs and teachings. With that, we are still skeptical. We have to keep after it. We have to keep working and not forget that. So keep those prayers going. Even with prayers, you may not be able to see what's happening. In your dreams, they can tell you many things. The truth. Reality happens later. Not to lose faith in that part of yourself will keep us going forward. You may run into a wall. Back up. Continue. At the time of emergence, we were told that we're left behind writings on walls, writings that tell of our history. These areas are left behind. They are sacred with spirits. Desecration of sacred areas will turn on you. Maybe the Hopi will stand up for you. Maybe not. Don't point fingers or judge. One day, you may turn to the person and want them to speak up for you. All the teachings that have been handed down, take them seriously. At the end will be a world court, a judgment day. Listen. Take it seriously. This is a lot to be talked about. Keep your prayers up. The outcome depends on our hearts and our souls. These words spoken today, I hope this message is taken into your hearts and souls. Take this wisdom home. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? 
Hey! 
1-800-259-9231 on Radio Orbit KOPN. This is Mike Hagan. It's about 12 minutes after 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, 16th of January. Hope you enjoyed that last piece of music, and I hope you enjoyed the words of wisdom uh, from Grandfather Martin that I read before that. Let's get uh, into this interview with Jonathan Miller Weisberger, uh, and... Um, uh, give me a call here, 573-874-5676 in the studio if uh, you want to say hello or uh, i got some things to give away. I don't know what exactly. Just give me a call. I'll mention a few things, and uh, if you want something, you can have it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be playing a taped interview for a couple hours here, so I'll be a little bit bored. So if you want to uh, give me a call and just say hi, I'd appreciate it. It's uh, 573-874-5676. And... Uh, We'll be back in uh, just a minute here with Jonathan Miller Weisberger. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. back to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, your host as always. And uh, tonight my guest is Jonathan Miller Weisberger. Jonathan is a ethnobotanist and uh, also the steward of a retreat in Costa Rica that is called Guaria de Osa. Uh, Jonathan has a uh, very interesting history and is, has been involved with the uh, number of indigenous peoples in the uh, Osa Peninsula and uh, in some other areas in Central and South America. And uh, I'm going to bring Jonathan on the line. We've got an interesting uh, setup for our conversation here. And um, Jonathan uh, Miller Weisberger, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks for being with us tonight. Well, thank you, now. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is uh, this is sort of a first uh, for my listeners here. I'm talking to Jonathan, and he's in Costa Rica. Uh, he's standing out uh, out in the ocean somewhere on a big rock. That's the only place he can get uh, get um, uh, service on on the cellular telephone. So uh, so we've got a pretty interesting thing going here. So now <laughs> That's where right. where are you at exactly, Jonathan? Um, I'm here just south of Drake Bay right now, on a beach called San Josecito. Um, in English, that would translate as St. Joseph. And I'm on a rock here overlooking the ocean and coconut trees, nice breeze. It's the beginning, beginning of the summer, so the weather's really nice. Wow, that's right. It's, uh, it's just sort of the beginning of winter here. In fact, today was probably the coldest day of the year so far where we're at. Yeah, yeah down here there's basically two predominant seasons, the rainy season and the dry season, which they call the summer here which begins right around now, about early December. Okay. Well, uh, listen, first of all, thanks very much for, uh, for taking the time to... Uh, it's ob it obviously wasn't something that was uh, very easy for you to accomplish, so we appreciate you taking the time uh, and spending it with us tonight, and we're going to try to uh, introduce my audience, uh, my listeners, to uh, some of the things that you guys are doing down there and um, uh, some of the reasons why you're doing them. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we talk about that real fast? Why don't you tell people a little bit about 
your history and uh, what ethnobotany is and why you're interested in the, uh, the, uh, the plants and the um, indigenous people uh, in, the, in the Amazon. And how did you get interested in all this stuff originally, Jonathan? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, okay. Basically, I, was, uh, I, was, I had the fortune because of my parents. They lived in Ecuador, so I was, able to, I was raised in Ecuador. And then I moved to the United States when I was 15. I finished high school, studied at Humboldt State University. And when I was studying at Humboldt State University, I began to get in touch with people who were concerned about the fate of the forest and joined the local rainforest action group. We started collecting petitions for um, different campaigns, particularly against oil companies that were wanting to make roads into indigenous territories in, in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And then, so I started, then I just got more and more curious remembering the few the experience I had when I was a kid growing up in Ecuador. I've actually been down to the Amazon rainforest a few times and even once went out to visit a, an indigenous community, specifically with a friend of my mother who was an ethnobotanist. I helped them press plants and make herbarium specimens. So finally, in 1990, I returned to Ecuador and I was able to get in touch with a friend, uh, a fellow by the name of Douglas Ferguson, who worked with the, uh, an Australian organization called the Rainforest Information Center mm-hmm. in Con- Rainforest Conservation Projects in Australia. And they had been invited by this progressive branch of the Ecuadorian government to work in Ecuador, helping these Indians, the Awa indigenous community on, in coastal Ecuador, create a, a manga, what they call a sleeve around their territory, in order to physically demarcate, ter- demarcate the territory at ground level, this consisted of basically a swath clear through the forest where they went and planted fruit trees and different kinds of useful trees that would be able to clearly delineate the, the boundary line. Right, okay. At the time that, that I got to Ecuador, that work had finished, but Douglas had been organizing them to, to do the demarcation of Wawarani territory. And he said that if I was interested, I could work with them. And of course, I was extremely interested in. But six months later, they acquired the funding from, in part, the Australian government, Australian aid, and also Friends of the Earth Sweden. And the project began, and we went, and eventually, over the next four years, we created 130 kilometers of boundary lines around the Waurani indigenous territory. And the Waurani's, they're the most recently contacted of Ecuador's Amazonian tribes. And until the 1970s, they would spear anyone that came near them. And, I mean, I could talk for a long time about the experience with the Wadani. is really a fascinating thing. Right. But then, initially, uh, a project came up, too, as well, to do a book for the Wadani schools on the uses of the medicinal plants, and the, the Rainforest Information Center wanted me to do that, to begin studying with the Wadani elders, the uses of the plants. And I was always really fascinated in, in plants, and I just, I studied some botany at HSE, but I, I never formally studied us botany. I, I just, my ethnobotany is from 10 years of field training, field mm-hmm. experience in, in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Okay. You Where know, most... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh-huh, no? No, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you're going to have to interrupt because <laughs> I could go wrong. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It, 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 it's no problem. It's great, actually. Uh, hey, Jonathan, you, you, uh-huh. men- you mentioned that you, were, that you spent some early years in Ecuador uh, before you moved to the States. How, how many years were you there uh, as, a, as a younger, uh, as a boy? Well, I was born in the United States, Berkeley, California, of all places. I was raised in Ecuador since I was two years old until I was 15. At age 15, I moved back to Berkeley, and then from there went up followed, graduated from high school and finished some studies at Humboldt State University. Right, right, right. Then in 1990, I returned to Ecuador. Okay, okay. 
and I worked in, in Yekum and Amazon until the year 2000, 10 years. Well, I was, I, I, my experience in Ecuador among five distinct indigenous communities, uh, the Waurani. Later I went to work with the Sequoia, which are an ethnic minority that live in, in the Amazonia, in the northern province of Tucumbias, in the Ecuador and Amazon. And then I worked with the, Sequoia, uh, with the Quichua of, of Napo province, particularly in the Archidona area, and in the Quichua of Puyo, and then with the Highland Quichua as well, so it's five communities. Wow. Okay, well, listen, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we'll talk a little bit about those peoples, about some of those indigenous communities, but first of all, let's do a little bit of a, uh, uh, if you could, give me a quick uh, layman's version of ethnobotany for people who uh, aren't uh, familiar with the scientific side of it. Tell them what ethnobotanists do and, uh, uh, and, and, and why the Amazon is such, a, such an inter- interesting place to do ethnobotany. Sure. Well, ethnobotany particularly means a study of the relationship between people and plants. So an ethnobotanist dedicates him or herself to studying the relationship between people and plants. And for the most part, the people that have most the more, more profound relationship with plants are those that, you know, indigenous people and then also country folk who have had some contact with indigenous people or just come from a long lineage of line- living in, in forests or rural areas. But indigenous people in particular have an extremely profound relationship with the nature for many reasons, mainly because well, in, in, in the Amazon region where there's such a high amount of different kinds of plants with such a rich biological diversity, just to put things in perspective, the, um, there's I think around 25 or maybe 30 species of trees in the entire Pacific Northwest of the United States and up to Canada and Alaska. Mm-hmm. In Ecuador, in the Ecuador and Amazon at the base of the Andes, in one hectare, which is 2.4 acres, you can find over you know, between 250 and 300 species of trees. My gosh. So, the, the, and then in the neotropics, which is the New World tropics of Central and South America, has a predominantly high biological diversity compared to other tropical regions of Africa, uh, uh, of the world, like Africa and Malaysia. The New World Tropics has an estimated 90,000 species of plants. Wow. The tropics of Africa, including Madagascar, are estimated at 30,000 species. And the Malaysian tropics, Indonesia, 35,000 species. Ecuador alone has 35,000 species of plants. So wow. these people that have been living up in the rainforest for all these, for many, many generations, they've lived lives that are, have been extremely isolated in deep forest conditions, so they... And for many, many generations, they you know, developed an extremely profound lore and knowledge of the forest. That's a whole other theme is how people have discovered the uses of the plants. Some, right. There's a lot of different theories and, and ideas about that. But in particular, you know, probably one of the most basic is that in desperate need of a, of a plant because of some accident or something, people start trying different things. But there's also the doctrine of signatures where each plant kind of contains, for example, like a plant that has red heart-shaped leaves, possibly is mm-hmm. good for the blood or for the heart. Right, And right. it's true, a lot of the plants, are, and I was able to prove that, that that is one of the ways that many of the indigenous peoples have learned the uses of forest medicines. I remember this old Wadani shaman, Mingatui, pointing out, actually he used it on me at a, at a sore on my foot, and there was a termite nest, and he said that this is really good, and he actually took some of the termite nest, ground it up, heated it up and he put it on the store of my foot and healed really quickly 
And he said it's because if you cut the termite master pokey with a stick the next day, it's all healed again. Huh. And then I saw that again later, and with the sequoias, there's a certain tree that they use for machete wounds or for cuts. And it's the same thing. If you cut the tree, it quickly heals itself over, so they, they see the tree as an ability, so then right. they believe it could do the same for one, and, and it does. And so that's one way that they've learned about the use of the plants. Another more profound way is through the belief that each plant has a spirit, or that the spirit from the forest that actually the elders and shamans through extreme discipline have been able to contact these spirits and learn from them. For example, there's this one spirit that the Kichwa talk about called the Chuyachaki Supai. Supai means spirit. Chuyachaki means one-legged, so the one-legged spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it's believed that the spirit lives in the forest and that certain individuals go through rigorous dieting. For example, they'll eat nothing but green bananas with no salt, no chili peppers, no sugar, uh -huh. not even water, just green banana mashed in water, and then certain breasts of like a pigeon that will smoke without any salt. And so that, you know, it sounds easy, but it really is yeah, pretty challenging. Oh, sure. Especially after 9, 10, 20, 30 days, 3 months, up to a year. My Some of these individuals have done this. And so throughout this time, and then there's a certain plant, see that this, that this spirit is affiliated with, so when they, they fast and they drink this plant, it's a forest, uh, forest bush. And then what happens is they walk out in the forest, they'll meet this, this spirit, this one-legged god, one-legged spirit that's hopping around out there. And um, what will happen is that this is just some accounts that I've heard from the elders. I've never experienced this firsthand. I'm just mm -hmm. relating okay, okay. what I've heard. But they'll, like, battle or push each other. And then sometimes the one-legged spirit will, will win by pushing over the, the person. He'll fall, and he says, Ah, you have to diet more. You haven't dieted enough, so we have to go and continue the diet. Eventually, the, the person who's studying will push the one-legged spirit over, and he'll fall. And he goes, Ah, you, you dieted enough, he said. So... Sometimes so I've heard some stories where they give him a belt, or he'll blow on his head, and or he'll teach him certain songs that this person can now use for healing, or he'll show him certain plants and the uses of the plants. And, and there's a lot of stories about how well, this, how how through this contact with spirits, people learn the use of the plants. And it's really interesting because there's a there's a general body of knowledge amongst the indigenous communities, but then there's also certain elders that have very specific knowledge, and right. they'll know plants that no one else knows. You know, um, and and they'll have specific uses that only they know about that plant. You know, so Jonathan, really, really, mm -hmm. you've made me uh, you made me think of uh, uh, one of the things that uh, the Dennis McKenna and I were talking about a couple weeks ago. We were talking about uh, ayahuasca, and mm. and the um, uh, not 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 only the uh, the fact that the uh, the shaman or the practitioner. Uh, um, goes into trance after using the substance and, and, and comes back with practical information, but also mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned uh, I always have found it fascinating to, to try to determine how uh, uh, how the combinatory uh, you know, how the thing was designed, how did they originally figure it out, because there's an elaborate preparatory process where you have to you know you have to boil and separate it out and boil again and all this stuff and it's like it seems uh -huh. it seems it seems very unlikely well, even, mm -hmm. you know that somebody would just come upon that uh, just by luck even if even if they were looking it's not by luck or by chance that they know about these plants and and the complicated part isn't really necessarily the boiling of the two plants down the the, the question that that's that's really that's incredible is how they discovered of all the different plants right 
that there's that there are two specific plants that have to be used together. Dennis might have talked about this on his show, but basically we know now that the active ingredient in this in the sacramental hallucinogenic medicine of the Amazonian Indians is is DMT. Right, right. But we also know that DMT is not active orally; that it needs an inhibitor, the mono amino acids, which which break it down. So how do they discover a plant? <laughs> One of them, which inhibits amino acids in this, in order for the DMT to be absorbed. That's a scientific way of looking at it. But um, yeah, for different, yeah, different stories from the people themselves, like for example, the Sequoia, they say that they learned about the use. What they call ayahuasca, they call it yahe. Yeah. They learned about Yahweh from God's multicolored people. There, um, and there's a story that goes back many generations ago. They, they were in the head, headwaters of the Santa Maria River, which is in Peru, close to the border between Ecuador and Peru, in the province of um, uh, along the Napo River. There's there's a place they believe that Creator Paina, which is in the Sequoia origin mythology, the Creator, the people. Hena didn't necessarily create the world or the universe, but Hena formed the world and also formed many animals and also formed the human beings as we are today. But Paina used to live on Earth. There's a time in the origin mythology that they said that Paina lived on Earth and in this area, in this certain area. And there's a lot of stories, really beautiful stories that talk about about this area, but one time there were some hunters out, and they, they came across these people that wore multicolored tunics that they had on their arms, they had tied with fragrant herbs, and they had cross necklaces, and beautiful crowns, and they had bluebird feathers, and they were living there, and they had plants that no one had ever seen before, that certain cane bushes that were striped, where little blue birds would come flying out of the tips of the bushes, huh. and they say that the Sequoias asked them who they were. They said they were Nyanyo Sekopai. They said they were God's multicolored people. And they were living there. And, and they, the Sequoias were really humble and sincere, and they liked that about them. So they started teaching them about how they could recuperate their original nature so they could return to heaven, basically, and live, enjoy spiritual immortality. And then they actually gave them the Yahe. They taught them how to prepare Yahe and gave them the plants. And then later they left because of certain things that happened. But that's that's and the other, and then there's another story, the Wawarani origin story of the first meet Yabu. Actually, I was able to, I was invited by 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 this author to contribute this the story of the origin mythology of the Wawaranis pertaining to the the ayahuasca, and it got published in a book called Ayahuasca Reader by Luis Eduardo Luna. Okay. There's an article there called The First Miyabu, and there the, it says that the Wauranis obtained the first ayahuasca vine by <clears throat> this incident that had happened where, well, it's kind of a long story, but this fellow got stuck up at the top of this tree, and the shaman, or in Wauranis, Iroina, which means someone who embodies all the experiences, the, the Wauranis believe that the Iroina, the shamans, are people that embody millions of years of experiences. So he raised his hands, it was, a, it was a he in this case, and blinked his eyes, and the story says that a lightning ball shot out of his eyelashes, and then there's a huge boa that came down from the clouds, his head was up in the clouds, and the boa was like a rainbow. Uh-huh. And he said to the, his, to the fellow up in the tree, hold on and come down, holding on to the boa, and the 
so the fellow held on and slid down the barrel really quick. So fast the story says all his hair blew off. <laughs> and once he got down to the ground, the old shaman said to him with this wooden machete that they had, here, quick, cut the tip of the tail off. So he cut the tip of the boa's tail off, and the snake slithered up to the sky. And, he, and then where the, where the um, blood of the boa dripped, he said, in two weeks you're going to find this thing there. And it's 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 really amazing story. To make a long story short, essentially he came back and his plant was growing and every day he kept returning and the, as the plant grew there was a bigger and bigger there was a first little small jaguar the size of a mouse, then another jaguar the size of a rabbit, let's say, and then a, uh, the size of a dog. Eventually when the vine got so big that it was flowering there was many kinds of jaguars, little ones, medium ones, big ones, all all up in the trees and <laughs> along the ground and so we did some some wild game and threw it off to one side and the jaguar smelled the meat and when they went over to eat he grabbed a few branches and ran off and then he, he he rubbed it in his hands and he smelled it and all these wild boar and animals showed up and he wasn't she thought maybe this attracts this attracts things whatever you're thinking about so he tried it actually this story it's, hilarious, it's pretty funny but um, he went to this festival and he opened up the bundle of leaves of this ayahuasca vine and, and then and he thought about basically women he thought about really, you know, having sexual relationships with women and suddenly <laughs> all the women in the party came running on him and jumped on him one, and the story goes that even the old ladies came crawling on all fours going I want two I want two and he finally managed to close the button leaf button and run away and the Wadanis have the most sensitive use of the ayahuasca they don't use it anymore but they say that in ancient times before they before they before they hunted meat they, the only thing that they lived off of was the leaves of the ayahuasca vine mashed with a certain fruit of the palm. Huh. That's all they, they just lived off of the drink. Wow, that's a great story. That's a great yeah. story. And, and uh, it, maybe, maybe that's one way to get Western uh, culture interested in, uh, in, these, uh, in these plants. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is that, I mean, it's very dangerous because it really truly is something that attracts whatever's on your mind. That's why, right. for example... You better be careful what uh, you're thinking. Just, you have to, one has to have this intention very clear when, if you ever have the opportunity to try this, right, this right. medicine. And, and the practitioners that use it, too, are very disciplined, very noble, and very chaste people because, you know, it has a lot of power, this, 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 this medicine, and it can create a lot of problems, too. Right, right, right. Yep, there's the, the whole duality thing. Well, one of the things, I mean, to, you know, to talk about ethnobotany, one of the things that is really fascinating about the indigenous use of ayahuasca is that definitely through the use of ayahuasca, the indigenous people have been able to learn about the certain um, uses of plants. In Peru, I spent some, I was fortunate that I was able to spend some time in Peru. I was actually with Dennis McKenna. Yeah, Dennis the is first the first time. And actually, Terrence McKenna was, um, sponsored my trip down to Peru. You know, you know Dennis, is there, Dennis is there right now. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, look at that. yeah. He's there right now. He's on a uh, on an expedition. He got a, he got a grant to go do some uh, to do a to do a field expedition there. They're looking for uh, a compound uh, to help with some particular psychological trauma. I forget exactly what, but uh -huh. yeah, yeah. But he's down there right now. And in fact, and uh, in fact, um, I sent him an email uh, and told him about the event that's happening at uh, Guaria de Osa uh, in February with uh, with yourself and uh, and Jeremy Narby. And uh, uh, Victor uh, Villarreal and and everybody else who's going to be there. And I I haven't heard back from him. I know he doesn't really have uh, access uh, to email real fast. But I but I told him, hey, you, you need to, you should probably go up there and see those guys. 
Yeah, that'd be great. I will appreciate you emailing him. And Dennis McKenna really is an incredible human being in his work. Anyone interested in this this subject must definitely look into his his work, his books, and his studies are very important. But, uh, yeah, and you know, the Jeremy Nelby is another incredible human being who will be at Guadalajara. So we'll, we'll talk about the retreat center here in Costa Rica in just a bit. And his work is fascinating, his book, The Cosmic Serpent. Right, right. He studies brilliant. the relationship, the correlations between the latest discoveries in molecular biology and the knowledge obtained through, you know, by indigenous shamans through the, in the basin of the, the sacramental medicine ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've read uh, The Cosmic Serpent. That's a brilliant book. I loved it, actually. Okay, Jonathan, I think that's a good place to take a break. So let's do that. We'll be back in a minute, play some music. And uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. My guest is Jonathan Miller-Weisberger, an ethnobotanist from Costa Rica. We'll be talking more in just a minute.
tragically hip KOPN radio orbit. In Peru, the, the indigenous people use the ayahuasca to discover the uses of plants by actually adding in certain plants into the beverage. It's, it's, a, it's a huge and vast and profound science. But ethnobotany, one of the reasons why ethnobotany is important for these times is, is it will have many, many different realities, but more particularly in situ amongst indigenous people in, themselves is ethnobotany extremely important and for different reasons. And it's something that I kind of come to call the new ethnobotany. Right, right. It's not, in, in the sense that it's kind of a new focus that ethnobotanists are taking now and seeing as, as an important focus is that, well, it's, you know, the, the, not only just the study of the relationship between people and plants, but also the seeking of methods of, to help indigenous and country folk people maintain their plant lore for several reasons. One of them, and I've discovered this in Ecuador and, and proven this for myself, is that where indigenous people when they maintain the conscientious, they maintain um, the, the knowledge of the forest and the knowledge of the medicinal plants, they always set aside a forest reserve in the community and have much more consciousness about the way they treat the forest and usually the land use ethics are, are more sustainable. Whereas other indigenous communities that, were the, that have lost and have been more you know, culturalized, lost their, their traditional knowledge of the use of plants, they're much more prone to practicing unsustainable landing methods, right, such right. as basically selling off their timber. They want roads, cattle ranching. And so another more practical reason as well is, you know, most people can't afford medicine. And also basically, you know, what, what we call maybe, I don't know what you'd call it, Western medicine or, right. or basically pharmaceuticals, right, <coughs> pharmaceutical right. medicine doesn't, you know, more and more we're realizing it doesn't really work. I mean, it works for certain things and definitely has its place, but, you know, as a preventative medicine or as a form of truly accomplishing total health, it doesn't work. I agree, I agree. And it can help people in certain times of crises, without a doubt. So people living way out in the jungle, they forget to become, you know, basically culturalized, they lose their, their, their knowledge of the forest, they live deep in the forest, they have to spend all kinds of money to go out to town to buy medicines, usually these rural outposts have the worst quality medicines and the pharmacists don't really, aren't doctors, they don't know, they prescribe wrong medicine. So, so just the people's own basic well-being and health, it's extremely important for country folk and indigenous people to maintain that plant more. Right. In Ecuador, we have the situation where there's basically millions of hectares of priceless tropical rainforest in the hands of indigenous people that are going through cultural dissolution. So when some of the work that I've been involved in is trying to find ways to, for example, publishing bilingual education books, both in the, in the language of the indigenous community and in the local language, in this case Spanish, mm -hmm. about the uses of the plants and highlighting the importance of it. And oftentimes, because there's a generation gap that's growing wider and wider, certain youth, they lost their elders or people, have, you know, the elders move up, you know, die or people move because of uh, migration and don't have elders near them. Right. So they don't know, they don't have anyone to learn about this plant from so a book of this nature has, can have a profound effect. And I hope that there's other ethnobotanists listening to what I'm saying now and that this inspires more people to go out into the field in Central or South America and work with indigenous communities, try to find small grants to support them, to publish the knowledge of these people's related medicinal plants in the language of these communities and in Spanish and try to work with the teacher of the local school to see if they can get them put into the curriculum of the school. That's extremely important. That also touches upon the issues of intellectual property rights. In most cases, 
something's happening now too where Darrell Posey, he's an anthropologist that discussed this issue of depth of intellectual property rights. And, you know, for example, with the case of um, Kurade, the classic case of Kurade where, indigenous, where Indians in the Amazon, and I have a, a Wadani origin myth about how they learned the, the use of Kurade arrow poisons too, mm -hmm. as well, which is a fascinating thing. And it was from the grandchildren, according to the story, the grandchildren of, of the grandmother and grandfather creator. They taught the Waranis how to use the certain vine so they could live better and so they could be able to catch meat through. Because the snakes have, they say, teeth, the eagles have claws, but the Waranis are living naked in the forest. You know, with, with basically, they needed a way to, to, to live. So the, grand, the grandchildren of, of, grand, of grandfather and grandmother creator taught them the use of the Kurada arrow poison. And then what happened is, is that many of those tribes in the Amazon use these arrow poisons too. It was discovered by, you know, by the West, and, and it has become one of the most, you know, alkaloid. Tubocuarine was isolated, and you know, probably I wouldn't be exaggerating saying that millions, or if not hundreds of thousands of lives, have been saved because it's a muscle relaxant that they use right, right, right. to accomplish, you know, delicate heart surgery. Right. Yeah. But the indigenous. You know, there are many. I, th I think there are. Uh, I, for I forget who uh, who I was listening to, but I but I know that you know, even even today, many of the pharmaceuticals uh, that are that are manufactured, uh, you know, and sold in the traditional Western method, like you're talking about, are still based. Many, I think, I, I think it was something like 75 percent of them are still based on plant compounds. Yes, that's true. That's the there you go. Um, nothing, you know, human beings, no matter how hard we try, will never be able to produce or even come close to imitating the, the complexity of the, of the molecules and the gene, and the alkaloids and the, the chemicals that nature produces. So, we, you know, it's ridiculous. All pharmaceuticals know this. They go straight to the source to look for medicine. So <laughs> pharmaceutical exactly. industries should be more involved in the fight to save the rainforest right. as a genetic library base, if nothing else, for their own industry. Right. Yeah, it's uh, um, it, it, it's just been a. I mean, obviously, the, the the relationship between the plants and the planet and the people has just been this uh, millions of year long sort of chemistry experiment. You know, just mm -hmm. developing all of these different compounds and different molecules and things. And and like you say, there's there's probably a compound for every damn neurotransmitter or every receptor in the human brain out there somewhere. It's just a matter of finding them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's extremely profound, extremely complex. Everything. There's a there's a book called The Wizard of the Upper Amazon by I think it's Bruce Lamb, an account of a, of a, a story of a, of a young boy who was captured by these Indians, and he was trained to be their chief, their shaman chief, hmm. so that because of the vision that the chief had, so that he could help the Indians acquire rifles. They literally just had faces tattooed, and they would never be able to buy rifles from the settlers. Okay. Um, and so he helped them get rifles so they could defend themselves against the invading rubber tappers as happened in the turn of the century. Okay. And the amazing thing is that a friend of mine went to Peru and he discovered, talking to this indigenous uh, people's federation, that these Indians, the Huni Kui or the Amawaka, which they're also called, which means those that don't cry, because they were basically they were one of the few people that when they got tortured by the rubber tappers, they'd never cry or make any, or scream or nothing. Very, very, very stern and extremely strong people 
Until this very day, they're one of the largest non-contacted tribes living in Peru. They'll kill anyone that comes near them. That and right? they live in a territory, an unrooted rainforest wilderness larger than all of Ecuador. Wow. And it's all... And so we have this book, you know, that's been written about these people because of this man, Manuel Cordoba Later he escaped the tribe and became a famous healer in Iquitos, Peru, and contributed a lot of knowledge to, um, in the, the realms of ethnobotany and... He was. He, he said that there's no illness amongst the human race that cannot be healed by plants and nature. Hmm. And I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we were talking about is this intellectual property rights and about the uh, the curata, arrow poison. So that's one case where like, you know, millions and millions of dollars have been generated, and none of it's gone back to help the forest survive or help the people that have discovered this right. in any way. And it's extremely complicated process. All of this. But I think that this uh, new ethnobotany is interesting because now what's happening is that a lot of indigenous people are very dubious about sharing the plant lore with people, with outsiders. But the indigenous youth aren't interested either. So the elders, as they die, they, they die with this knowledge. Richard Evan Schultes, who is really the father of, of ethnobotany of this century, so Harvard ethnobotanist, published several books, Where the Gods Reign, plants, um, I think it's Botany and Chemistry of Hallucinogenic Plants. Plants of the Gods, Vine of the Soul. Wow. And uh, he published some incredible books. He he uh, he said that the, the knowledge of the of the forest is disappearing faster than the forest itself. So if people go down there with this intention of helping the community put together a booklet on the plants in both the native language and Spanish for wow. the community, oh we're much more likely to receive accurate knowledge as well. And then what the certain person does with that knowledge, it's just is there's a lot of possibilities, but it's um I, I don't know I think I don't think like you know I think this will never really enter the mainstream traditional Chinese medicine and the patent pharmaceutical you know, patent herbal medicines that they have is probably an Ayurvedic medicine will probably eventually get more mainstream than let's say Amazonian rainforest medicine. There's one mm-hmm. company, Rainforest Bioenergetics, that work with indigenous people in Peru marketing really fine quality rainforest herbs but I think it's probably never really going to get into the mainstream but people interested in you know enhancing their health have a lot to, to benefit from experimenting with rainforest medicines mm-hmm. but most of them will never make it mm-hmm. into the mainstream it'll just right. be the blessed few right that, have to that go are out. able to you gotta go out and yeah. look you gotta go out and look for them you gotta know a little bit about it and want to go out there and learn about them so right well, hopefully people that are listening to this program uh, will uh, will understand some of these things and realize uh, that there are some, uh, not some, but there are just a myriad of treasures out there and, and priceless uh, information and, and, and uh, species. And the indigenous peoples themselves, the cultures themselves, like you say, are being, uh, are being dissolved, literally absorbed into uh, post-industrialist Western capitalism. And... Um, uh, saving and somehow uh, preserving this knowledge is certainly something that is incredibly important. And, you know, Jonathan, it's yeah. funny because I think that more and more people, uh, this idea that you have of the so-called new ethnobotany, I think that the timing is right because there are a lot more people, I think, realizing that the, that this, the disconnect or the separation from nature uh, has been... 
uh, really debilitating and one of the major problems that we've run into in Western society that's now really sort of coming to a head. And I think a lot of people really are realizing that we have to reestablish that connection to the earth and to the plants because, I mean, what, what are people without plants? We, we have to have plants to survive, period. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So anyway, okay. Well, with that, I think um, why don't we talk about uh, about Guardia de Osa a little bit and um, uh, and what uh, what you guys are doing there. Obviously, um, you're doing some incredible things. So tell me tell me how you get, uh, how how that thing got going and what what it's all about. But I tell you what, let's take a break first. So uh, we'll do that and we'll be back again with my guest Jonathan Miller Weisberger. This is Radio Orbit on KOPN. Just I go Boy, a 
Yeah, what else is an incredible project? Wadi means orchid. And so what, also it's, cause it's on the Osa Peninsula. Which is, so where, it, where is that exactly, Osa, Jonathan? Osa Peninsula is um, in South, South Pacific, Costa Rica. Okay. It's on the border between Costa Rica and Panama. And it's an incredible area. The Osa Peninsula is the world-famous Corcovallo Corco National Park, which is really one of the most intact wilderness rainforest preserves left in the New World tropics. And it's hundreds, hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness rainforest tumbling right down to a pristine ocean wow. that is loaded with whales and dolphins. Oh, my gosh. It's really beautiful out here. There's no lack of wildlife all kinds of monkeys, tapirs, many, many kinds of beautiful birds, scarlet macaws, toucans, white hawks, black hawks. Huh. And the ocean is really just vibrant and alive. The area is just charged with all kinds of energy. Sounds incredible. Really strong natural energy. The sunset, the sun setting right now, the gorgeous sunset, the sky is just filled with colors. 515 men here right now. Man, you know, I can hear the, I can hear the waves breaking in the background too. It just sounds incredible. It is, yeah, it is. We got this office here on, this, on a rock, <clears throat> complete with a coconut peeler. Oh my Every God. day when I come make a phone call, yeah, I found a. Uh, we look for a, there's tons of coconuts here. When they fall, and they start sprouting. You, you peel them with a the stake, and the inside is like this huge softball-sized sprout. That's just delicious. <laughs> <laughs> One of a kind. Anyway, so we, we were able to just, you know, as a, just an enthusiast and admirer of the rainforest, I always wanted to come visit the Yosef Peninsula. Right. And my mother, from being from Panama, one day we finally came and visited some relatives in Panama, so I took the opportunity to come north and cross over the border into Costa Rica and hiked 80 kilometers across the whole Yosef Peninsula. When I met this old guy named Don, who I work with, who works with us today still, named Don Victorio Villarreal Villarreal which is a classic name because Victoria means victory and Vigerel is from the real village. Huh. So victory from the real village. And he, he was raised with the indigenous people here in Costa Rica, which are very few. It's like 3 or 4% of the population of Costa Rica is indigenous as opposed to Ecuador, which is like 48%. Wow. But, um, and since he was a guitarist and played really good guitar, they'd always take him along for their different events and religious festivals to play guitar. So he became friends with the chief because he said here they're extremely jealous which uh-huh. a plant lore but he started learning about the medicinal plants and he's a local herbologist and a healer and I've had the good fortune of being able to study with him and helped him out a bit with his fixing his house and doing some work for the old man so he's he became better and better friends and so he actually has been teaching me a lot about the local medicinal plants here which wonderful, is wonderful. really a great thing and then you know, I spent about five days at his house he asked me if I was interested in buying some property and I said if it's in the will of the great spirit this place is just too good to be true, and he brought me down and introduced me to this family that wanted to sell, and so we ended up buying this property out here, and since this, this happened in the year 2000, and five years now we've been building the center, and uh, Guadalupe means orchid, as I said, and we called it orchid because orchid represents, <clears throat> it's a symbol of the freshness of nature. Uh-huh. So part of our aspirations is a center, which is a retreat center, we call it Guadalupe de Osa, rainforest and ocean retreat and ethnobotanical gardens is to create a place in nature close to the rainforest ocean right on the beach where people can come and enjoy nature and get in touch with the freshness of, of nature. Nature has the ability of renewing everything and it can renew people and it can renew our spirit and for our own vibrancy, for our own health and happiness, it's really important to get out into nature 
and help to stay fresh, stay new. So we got the center here, yoga floor. We've had a few <clears throat> groups come down with yoga instructors to practice yoga, swim in the ocean, explore the forest. And we've also, part of the, part of the intentions of the center being kind of in the balance point between North and South America, right, in Central America, and also to the Pacific and the Caribbean Oceans, it's a, a, a teaching center that brings together the time-tested aspects of the time-tested world cultures of East and West, of the Americas, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and of the Orient, of Asia. So we, I myself, I'm a practitioner of, of a certain style of Chinese yoga called Daowin, which I, I share and teach. I was fortunate to study traditional Chinese massage with a Chinese master. We teach and you know, practice therapeutic massage, Twina. And we want to bring together, we've had Dom Maringo come, who's the author, co-author of Ayahuasca Vision, mm -hmm. the iconography of a Peruvian shop. Extremely incredible experiences. You know, classic old-time teaching in Ayahuasca, Don Bartolo Aguinda here with us right now, who who's sharing with you know guests that come about his experience as a as a practicing shaman, and he actually does healings on people too. And, and so we want to bring together you know, aspects like yoga, Dawin, Tai Chi, and uh, traditional knowledge of the Americas, ethnobotany, shamanism, and in its truest form, which is a really high form of spiritual, you know, contact, basically, and spiritual mm -hmm. energy. Right. Well, and this, in, uh, in this February, we have a retreat coming up with, with Jeremy Narby and also <clears throat> uh, David Abrams, who's the author of The Spell of the, of the Sensuous, recently confirmed that he will be coming as well. Wonderful. So, so this will be happening from the 1st to the 9th of February. All right. Well, uh, let me uh, let me give a little bit of information out about the website and stuff if people want to get more information on this. Uh -huh. um, sure. For uh, for those uh, who are interested, you can go to the web at http uh, com. That's g u a r i a d e o s a dot com. And uh, just go to the home page there, and there's all kinds of information about some of the events that are coming up, uh, the retreat center itself, uh, information about, uh, about Jonathan here and some of the other staff members. And it, and it looks like it's just a fantastic place. I mean, it looks like it's just incredible, Jonathan. Yeah, we're really blessed to be able to find and acquire this property because it's a really phenomenal place. The forest, the forest here is just out of control. Huge trees. Loads of wildlife, um, phosphorescent plankton light up the waves at night like fluorescent light bulbs. Huh. And, and Costa Rica is a really genuinely beautiful country. The people are really peaceful, and it's just just it's a really to do this this kind of thing and bring people together. So every anyone who's interested is more than welcome to check out our website and join us if you if you can. I'm sure, it's going to be a great experience. All right, now. Um now, Guardia is is also a uh, it's sort of a family affair, isn't it? I know that your mother's involved, and uh... yeah, it's a small, basically, it's a family-run operation, and uh, we have room for about 22 to 30. Also, with camp uh, <coughs> guests, we have one main lodge, which is three-storied, and it's been built like a traditional Taoist temple with raised eaves, cloudburst eaves. We have another bungalow cabin that's two stories with private bath on each floor with some guest quarters. Then we have another house with the, with, uh, the 
floors as well with uh, the um, some shared communal showers and dining hall. And uh, we were able to build the center out completely from trees falling over in windstorms up in... Some of the trees were cut down over 30 years ago to make pastures up here about an hour back in the settlement called, called Los Planes. So it's, it's an incredible feat of architecture in, the, in, the, in many reasons, for also because of the fact that we didn't have to cut any trees down right. to acquire the timber. It was all hauled in by oxen and horse. There's no roads. We're about a 30-minute, well, we're an hour and a half boat ride from the end of the road. Okay. There's another road that comes out to Drake Bay that's open only in the dry season, and that's about 20 minutes drive, wow. 20 minute boat ride. So in order to get there, you have to take a, you drive to a certain part and then get on a boat and then take the boat the rest of the way to your place. KOPN 89.5 FM. On Nature Air, has these beautiful plains, the huge windows, the stunning views of the Paradise coastline and the Rainforest Hills. That's a 40 minute flight to Drake Bay. And from there, it's 20 minutes by boat, and then about Another 20 minutes walking down the beach. Wow. Better walk through this coconut grove and then along this beach. Well, it sounds like it's something else. So uh, so kudos to you guys <laughs> for, get, for getting that whole thing together. I think it's great. Okay, um, well, uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, about your project there. We've talked about ethnobotany, a little bit about the, the tribes and stuff. Um, uh, I'll kind of let you uh, uh, take it where you like right now, but I'd certainly like to know more about... Um, I think one of the things that people would like to know about is we, we, we've told some uh, interesting stories and some uh, there, some some fun stuff. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the actual benefits that some of these things uh, might bring to... Uh, you know, to Western society. I w in other words, we have to give people a reason to believe that this is important, you know. And it's, it's so, uh, it seems obvious to you and me, perhaps. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the value that's really there in the rainforest, and not just in the plants themselves, but with the tribes. And, and, and this, this knowledge and stuff that they have isn't all just, uh, you know, just hocus-pocus. Uh, there's, there's some practical, practical applications for all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. In order to stay healthy, we need to be in touch with the vitality of nature. So that can be found anywhere in the city or in the, or in the country. And um, plants and ingesting plants, you know, we're able to communicate more with that energy, receive that energy from them, but also through practices like yoga, meditation, we're able to serenade our bodies. And there's an energy here on the Yosa Peninsula, very unique. And um, it's very interesting too because hundreds of years ago there was indigenous tribes that lived in this area and they made extremely elaborate gold um, ornament, ornaments and gold eagles that they'd wear and all sorts of gold nose pieces and earrings with little bells hanging on them. And then um, they heard about the conquest of the Inca uh, that, that was taking place of the, the Mayas and the Aztecs and then they all collect, committed a collective suicide. Hmm. Indians in this area. They buried themselves alive. But before doing that, because they thought that what they're going to do is they're just going to basically... The indigenous people, before contact with uh, civilization, they didn't have a, a belief in life or death. There was no difference between life. The Waranis have this origin, this story about a time long ago where, they're, where they're, when someone died, they just went to live on the other side of this river. But there's a bridge so you could cross over easily, go back and forth. 
and uh, someone took advantage of the powers that, that you received once you died. Right. And that's what made... It was actually an accident, they say. That's what made the, the river widen and widen and widen where the bridge fell into the water and then they couldn't cross anymore. And what I was talking about is the Indians, the indigenous people in the area of the Yosef Peninsula. It's very strange. I read this in a book, Committed Collective Suicide, about 400 years ago. Wow. And they thought that, you know, basically instead of being conquered that they would just go away to another place and then come back later hmm. when the land was free again to live in peace. And so what they did is that they buried all their gold and uh, they did it. There's all sorts of mysteries related to, do, to this gold. And some people have gotten pretty rich about also find, you know, finding gold out here on the Yosef Peninsula. There's an 18 kilo, 18 kilo nougat of gold rock, basically, in the Jade and Gold Museum in San Jose. It's the last piece My God, that you leave the museum. That was found just an hour north of here on, on the Violinas Island. It's, it's prohibited for, the government has it totally prohibited for anyone to, to take gold out now. Right. But um, some people say it's because of the gold that was buried by the Indians that you, that, that you can witness them and what I'm going to share with you. And, and it's very strange. Once in a while, I've seen this happen a few times at night. You're walking down the beach, and and this ball of light came out, and then just broke up into hundreds of pieces like fireworks, and just sprinkled out all over the place. Huh. And then when I first bought the property, I didn't see this except the last night I saw it. But some of the neighbors said it was happening like every night because I was going to bed too early. We're on ten o'clock. Right. Sprinkles of blue light were coming up from behind. Just directly behind our property, coming up through the sky and coming down to this island called Kanyo Island. That's I'm looking at it right now. It's about a 45-minute boat ride. It's an oceanic reserve, and it was a ceremonial site where a lot of the chiefs and spiritual chiefs were bur buried. That's a very important pre-Columbian burial site. And so that's really, really mysterious. One time, a friend of ours was caretaking the center here, and we were all out, and he was here alone. It happened to be February 14th, and he saw this ball of green light right there around 3 in the morning, hoovering in front of the house, and he just he felt extremely happy. He said he wasn't scared or anything, and it expanded a bit and contracted a bit and went around the house and then slowly kind of went up the hill and disappeared into the forest. But it's, um, <clears throat> it's called Amasanga Supai which means it's the spirit or the power of nature. Wherever nature is, is, is pristine, it has, an, it has a lot of power. It's a place for people to become submerged in nature, and it's really sublime, too. Just enjoy the nature. Let nature renew one. And the Indians always have, a, have one of the classical aspects of indigenous culture is the Purina Tambu, which means like a place away from the village where they'll go for hunting, or for purification. Indigenous people look at nature as a place for, to achieve purification. Mm -hmm. They'll go bathe in the waterfalls, swim in the river um, where the rapids are and the clear rivers lay in the rapids. And so the Purina Tambo is a place away from where you live, where you go into nature, to retreat into nature to achieve purification and, and health and vitality from nature. Okay. Okay. So that's what our center in Costa Rica is about, is not your average hotel or eco-resort. Right, right. You kind of want to consider like a Purina Tambo. It's a, a place in nature where people can come achieve healing, renewal, spiritual purification right. through contact with nature and 
different guest elders and cultural masters that will be coming to give different workshops and presentations. Well, okay, let's talk some more about uh, those types of people, the cultural masters that we're talking about, the shamans, the people that are coming there to speak, and what, uh, what are they sharing? What are they teaching? A lot of the elders, especially the, you know, like the shamans, are extremely reserved people in the, in the, in the, the literature, classical Taoist literature you often come across. He who speaks does not know. Hmm. He who does not speak knows. And with, the elder, with a lot of indigenous elders, the classic case, they hardly say a word. And so just to be with these old-time people and receive their energy is a blessing in and of itself, not to idealize them, the human beings as well, but like Don Bartolo, he's, he's here right now, and so he, he talks a bit about his like experiences, right. um, different kind of um, different healings that he's accomplished. He can talk about and share. He talks about his disciplining, the dieting that he went through, his his father, his grandfather's ancestors, how he learned to be a shaman, how he learned to have contact with the spirit of nature, how he surpassed the temptations of the lower levels mm-hmm. to do harm or how he purified himself with jealousies and these kind of things that, that, that prevent one from having contact with divine spirits that allow one to allow these people, these individuals to accomplish healings. He's also here to heal people, so if people have complicated ailments, they can come and, and maybe one week might be too short a time, but he can, you know, he, he, he's here to do healings on people as well. And then, like, we have people like Jeremy Narby, who I would consider a cultural master in his own right, too. He's a doctorate in anthropology. But he's, he's from the West. He's, he's, he speaks English, and he's educated in university. And just because he talks a lot doesn't mean he doesn't know. But he's not a, coming out as a spiritual master. He's, he's an anthropologist. Right, right, and he right. has a great amount of information to share about in this specific workshop, about the relationship and about the latest discoveries of the molecular biology of DNA and how that corresponds, how certain aspects of the shamanic knowledge, the, the, the knowledge that the shamans have acquired through the use of these, of these sacramental um, beverages, how, how, how they, what, it, what they've discovered in previous, from ancient times and what they still use in practice today, how that correlates with DNA, the latest discoveries of DNA. And then some of the things, too, we share and teach are certain meditation techniques, uh, ways of serenading, of calming the spirit, calming the being to achieve a sense of inner peace, which is always important for health, for success. Yoga, we practice and teach yoga, which is a form of traditional exercises originally from India. There's different types of yoga that are used now. More, It's becoming more and more popular as a form of achieving health, inner peace, vitality. And then we also do a lot of practices in, in nature, different forms, different meditations in nature where some of the masters that come, we have like Don Victorio, the classic Osipenenta elder, who teaches about the use of the local medicinal plants and accomplishes healings that people need for ailments they might have. He can prescribe rainforest medicinals and prepare bottles of medicine for people to bring with them or give them barks. Trees. He talks a lot about his experiences raised amongst the indigenous people when he was a gold t- a gold panner back in the day of Corcoral be- mm-hmm. before it came to National Park. Right. And so it's just pretty much. We also it's all the <clears throat> the workshop is interlaced with ocean 
adventures, rainforest adventures. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of it's practice, practical, first-hand experience with nature, with the rainforest, and then in the afternoon talking to the elders about their experiences, receiving a good massage, practicing some yoga, getting healed by one of the elders, listening to uh, to one of the experts, give a presentation about his experiences and so forth and so on. Okay. All right. Hey, um, uh, you, you, you made me think about something when you talked about uh, some of the rainforest hikes and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the history uh, of that area, and maybe, like you talked about, three, four hundred years ago, the tribes, uh, the indigenous people that were living there, do you, are there still ruins and, and, and things there? In other words, in, in the middle of the forest, is it, is, is it the possibility you know, that there are still you know, cities and things that have yet to be uncovered out there? Well, there are. Yeah, there's huge. Like, there's this one woman that lives up in the hill up here. She's living right on top of indigenous indigenous burial site, and they guarded ferociously. Didn't let anyone go in and looking for digging around. And uh-huh. about six months ago, one of their horses died, and they dug a hole to bury it, and they found this golden eagle down uh-huh. there in the ground. Like you were talking about before. But one of the things that's amazing in this area is on the 5,000 Colonna Costa Rican Bill. It's just perfectly spherical rocks that, with a modern-day lathe, could not be made. They weigh tons, and uh, they're made out of granite that's found in the north part of the country, so no one really knows how they even got here. And there's all the kinds of different theories, but um, in the 19, a lot of them were moved into parks in the front of banks, but a lot of them are still in the, the original sites. We, we visit some of these spheres. And um, it's interesting because a study was done in the 1970s before these, a lot of these stones were moved, and the fellow that did this study discovered that a bunch of these rocks, like 10 of these spheres, were in a perfectly straight line indicating towards Easter Island. Oh, man. And then there was another bunch of rocks in, in a perfectly straight line, and they were, like, he traced it, you know, in a line just around the globe, just to see out of curiosity where it would land. And to the precision, they landed on the, 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 the pyramids in Egypt. In Egypt, at Giza, right. So it's very mysterious, and there's some out on the island, too. You'd have to have a pretty hefty boat to get one of those out there. But no one really knows. There's a lot of different theories about, about how they were formed and made and why, they were, why they're there. But that's, that's, that's a mark that the, the ancestor people of this area left. Yeah, that's a whole nother, uh That's a whole nother, uh story. You know, the, the the mysterious history of so much of the, uh, so many of the different tribes uh, from South America. You know, that you, you made me think of uh, another phenomenon that I that I'm very curious about that I've yet to really see a reasonable answer yet. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the with the so-called Ica stones of Peru. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and uh, of course that's just one one more example. But there there's so much uh, as as you mentioned. There's the current uh, indigenous knowledge and the plant life um, that is in that, that that's there right now in real time. Uh, yet there are also all of these historical mysteries and unknowns and questions that we have so much to learn from as well. And uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that knowledge is being lost as well. So I really do think oh, yeah. that it's wonderful that, that, that you guys are working so hard to uh, to preserve this stuff, John. So. Yeah, yeah well, we're doing what we we can to try to create you know, bridges basically between generations, between communities, between peoples to allow for this knowledge to be shared and transmitted in, in you know, in, um, in basically personal ways between individuals that really can nourish and help individuals and little by little each individual is part of society. But, you know, there's one thing too that's really incredible that as you know, we know more and more that, that pre pre Columbian you know, pre- 
ancestral uh, civilizations had precise mathematical knowledge. Right. And there's one thing that was really interesting that interested in Ecuador, which is right on the center of the, of the globe, on the equator, is that I think it was the French, that when the French team came to build this monument at the, uh, in Ecuador called the Mitad del Mundo, the center of the world, right on the equator, there was no GPSs in those days yet. And they actually built it like, I think it's like, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's actually like almost two or 3,000 meters north, no, south, south of the equator. Okay. So they, they, they missed the exact spot. But now with GPSs, the archaeologists doing these studies, they found this spot precisely at zero 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 zero. No Basically, way. Basically, it's like, and it's an it's an arch, it's an ancient archaeological site that's a perfectly round stone uh, plaza right at the center, exact center. And there's this um there's these two peaks. Well, right at the time of the of the, of the um, summer winter solstice. The sun comes right over those, each of those peaks. <laughs> they were right. They, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> yep, no doubt. And, and there, there are examples of that all over the world. And it's so interesting that uh, you mentioned that those stones were lined up in such a way to uh, point, uh, in one case, to Easter Island and in the other case, over to Giza. But, uh, you know, I, I had never heard that particular story before, but it's certainly in line with some of the other uh, uh, the other sort of uh, monuments that are that exist all around the planet that, that sort of indicate to me that at some time in the past uh, there was uh, certainly there was an, an, an advanced civilization that understood things like higher mathematics and uh, astronomy and things like that but also it seems that they were connected uh, across the globe that there was maybe some sort of communication across the planet mm-hmm Okay, Jonathan, uh, good time for another break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. My guest is Jonathan Miller-Weisberger, ethnobotanist down at Guaria de Osa in Costa Rica. Back in just a few. Thanks for listening. All right, uh, this is Mike, and we're going to get right back to that interview because we're kind of tight for time. Stick around for Carol Greenspan and Jewish Spectrum coming up right after my show, and um, we'll uh, play the rest of this interview and play a little bit of music right at the end of the show and um, and then uh, be back next week. And by the way, Pledge Drive starts. We're going to do Pledge Drive next week and the following week, and I'm going to try to raise some money so I don't have a whole lot of you listening out there. Uh, so the ones of you uh, who are listening and appreciate this program, uh, think about it next week, okay? Thanks a lot. Back in a minute. You know, if anyone's interested in <clears throat> reading about some of the... Uh, coming to coming coming into contact with the depth of spiritual knowledge that that the masters have. There's a, there's a, a series of excellent excellent books by a Taoist master by the name of Ni Huaqing. Huaqing Ni. He has a website and it's DaoStar.com. It's www.DaoStar.com. It's filled with a T. T A O S T A R dot com. Okay. And you'll see there the several links on his website to his herb company, which is Traditions of Dao. He put out excellent traditional herbal formulas. And he's a 76th generation Taoist master who's written several really phenomenal books about the, the ancient culture in a, in a modern way where modern readers can really appreciate and enjoy. So anyone interested in ancestral cultures and traditional cultures and find the relevancy of this, of this wisdom 
to enhance our life today would highly benefit from reviewing some of Master Nee's books. All right. Well, um, you want to talk a little bit about some of that stuff? You want to talk about uh, some of the things that you've learned uh, from those traditions and, and how they can uh, help us in the, in the real world in, in, in the year 2005? Yeah, well, you know, thing now, now, for example, like it seems sometimes that maybe a lot of the spiritual laws of the past was actually discovered to help people in this time. Now we're that we're in a time where this knowledge is most needed, probably more than ever. I agree. Because we're at the verge of you know basically destroying the you know, the world's resources, global warming, and sometimes it's really depressing because of you know the decisions that our leaders make. Are extremely are disrupting the peace in the world, so that that throws people off balance and their own inner peace. And so, you know, Master Nee's books are full of different practices. Like Taoism, for example, is one, which is a traditional yoga that helps to dis it means energy challenge uh, channeling. So the the purpose of Taoism is to break up obstructions of energy inside the body, so that the energy inside the body can flow freely. Uh, each human body is basically constructed of, of, besides the tissues, the nervous system, and the bones and all the organs, we also have energy flows through our body, which the traditional Chinese doctors call, today is known as meridians. These meridians, the first sign of a disease, or, or, uh, it would be a blockage of the energy flow through these meridians. These meridians intercorrelate inter all the organs in different parts of the body. Is this then later comes. Uh -huh. Jonathan, is that is this similar to the to the Indian idea of chakras and this sort of thing, energy centers, or? or There's a lot of similarities, and basically different traditions all kind of touch upon the same points, but in different ways. A friend of mine, Jeffrey Conant, he was just here, just down here at Guadalajara, left two days ago. He uh, published in a really interesting book about the correlations between acupuncture and Mayan traditional medicine. The Mayans actually had a form of acupuncture, and it was, it's much more uh, rudimentary than the traditional Chinese huh. acupuncture, but they had acupuncture, and they knew about meridians. Wow. And so, and like, for example, the chakras in the Taoist co uh, culture is called the Dan Dian, which means an energy field or a garden where energy is cultivated, mm -hmm. immortal medicine, immortal energy is cultivated. Um, I'm just a student of these things, but they've helped me in many, many ways. Taoism in particular has really helped me. Um, one of the things you notice when you start practicing Taoism for a while is that you don't get sick. Hmm. And you have good, solid energy. I wake up in the morning and I have good energy. And I go to sleep, and I sleep good, and I have good dreams, and I wake up and I feel good. <laughs> That's something that uh, that we could sell to a lot of people. I think uh, that, <laughs> that you know these uh, these practical ideas. It's so funny because in the in the uh, in the rat race, you know, in in Western society, especially up here in the states, you know, in the big cities, and that you have so many people that are so uh, look. You know, people are looking. They're looking everywhere for some way, you know, to mm -hmm. to uh, to 
to do exactly the sort of things that you're talking about, to calm down, to get healthy, to uh, to to uh, feel better about themselves, in you know, both spiritually and mentally, physically, the whole bit. And 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 many of these answers, or many of the things that could help them, are 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 free, and they're right here. They're 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 right in front of them. But they're but the fact that they are looking in the wrong place or don't know where to look. Uh, they they never even they, a lot of people don't even learn about these things, you know. Right, that's one of the good things we can do through these talk shows is announce to the public basically about these spiritual resources such as Master Needs books, about the retreats that we organize, why the people want to come down, visit the forest, meet some spiritual cultural masters, <clears throat> get pointed in certain directions that may or may not help. And it all depends on on her own earnest and sincere yearning to learn and discover to make herself wiser and healthier. Mm-hmm. But, for example, one of the things, too, that's really sad now is that people become more more materialistic and they think more about me, 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 and what only helps me instead of thinking about others as well. And there's a, a quote in one of these books written by Master Nee that says, One inch attachment represents one inch of spiritual entrapment. And so... Right now, basically, people are more and more entrapped all the time because we're so attached to all this right, all these material, material things. things. And we use so much resources constantly. And so it's really good. I highly urge people to travel, too, to get out and oh, see the way the world is, not gosh. just to stay in their own little box. You know, it's good to, to read about the world, to go out, to visit. If people have the, the extra resources that can afford traveling, that's really important to help deepen our experiences. And to somehow get involved as well in some kind of service. For example, here with our projects in, uh, in Costa Rica, we're just starting off in the business just beginning. We really sincerely hope that we'll, that will become a successful un- un- enterprise. And we want to donate 3% of the funds we raise to our nonprofit organization for our projects in Ecuador. I have a, I'll leave you with this last note. I still have a project in Ecuador. It's with a community, a Kichwa Indian community called the Amasanga community. Amasanga means the spirit of the forest, and it's um, where their grandfather studied to be a shaman. These sacred lakes, we were able to buy it off this, these colonists that live there, because of this proposed road that was going to be put through a bunch of years ago. This, all these colonists came and basically settled the area. No one really lives out there, but they have land claims out there, and some of them even have a uh, land title. So, with the help of a foundation in California, the Living Bridges Foundation, as mm-hmm. well as the Tropical Rainforest Coalition and another group that recently helped us as well, the Family Lands Trust. We've been able to, over the years, little by little, buy more and more rainforest. These properties directly border with Sangha National Park as well, which has been declared by UNESCO as a patrimony of humanity. This is in Amazonian Ecuador. We have 3,000 acres now purchased, and it's uh, it's in the name of the Amazonian community. We have a contractual agreement with the community that they're going to use the land as a purinatambu, which basically means a place to choose purification in nature like the old days, live the traditional ways and bring people, visiting guests. And this uh, this June, June 18th, we have actually a workshop tour down there as well. That'll be posted on our website by, by early January. All right, that sounds great. Hey, you know, I was just thinking about something else, too. Um, 
uh, with regard to to the experiences that are available down there um, in Costa Rica and and in many places. Uh, first of all, I want to agree with you fully for people to get out there and experience their world, see the planet as much of it as they can. And and uh, like Jonathan says, if you have the resources to go elsewhere, do it. If you don't have the resources, there are usually amazing places that aren't very far from where all of us live. I li- I live mm-hmm. I live in the middle of uh, Missouri. Uh, in at a place where a p- place where people would think couldn't be more boring, but there is some incredible uh, Native American um, history around here. There are mo- mounds and terraforms that uh, uh, that are astronomically significant, and there's lots of incredible research in most of our backyards. Um, it's just a matter of wanting to learn and going out there and finding it. But uh, um, Jonathan, I want to talk about children and about how. Um, uh, the effect of these things on children. Um, I have I have a one-year-old son, and uh, and more than more than anything, I want to get him down to a place like Guaria de Osa so he can experience uh, at a young age, you know, the the true setting of the forest and 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 that uh, and and that that feeling of the connection to nature and I think I think that so many children unfortunately these days uh, aren't afforded that um, and grow up uh, really uh, debilitated in a certain way for longing for that connection to nature mm. yeah it's really important too it doesn't work theoretically watching movies you know wildlife films or reading books about the countryside that won't work the only way to really experience nature is by going out leaving the city, going out into the country, going up to some wilderness peaks or some national park and experiencing it firsthand. And it's really important for kids to get out into the forest at least, you know, a few times a year, especially, you know, inner city kids. Because the nature just does something to people. For me, it's inspired me profoundly. And it's something that really is part of the heritage of humanity. We, We live in a natural world. So, you know, so many people live in cities now, so they don't get to experience nature except for maybe outside of a park or for the pigeons. Right. But to get out into pristine primary nature where there's old-growth trees and where the forest has never been logged or the panoramic vistas of wilderness peaks is really important to deepen the human soul, make us wiser. And the only thing that wisdom can do to a human being is is give us more inner peace, help us to deal with the challenges of living in a more and more complex world. There's nothing to fear. And and I, I agree with you, getting kids out into the woods is really an important thing. One of the intentions for our summer here, we'd like to eventually down the line, is organize some kind of like summer camp, bring kids out here and teach them how to make fires without matches. And <laughs> it's warm so we can get away with like sleeping on the beach with no, no, no uh, blanket right, right. and doing kind of initiation rites of passage things, which are essentially, you know, things that give one courage in combination with humility. Right. Traditional culture teaches us the importance of courage, but in combination with, with sincerity and humility. Gosh, I, I agree. There's different virtues. Master Nguyen, his book, talks all about the virtues that are, that are found in nature and in the, that we need to cultivate within ourselves. Yeah, this whole idea that uh, you know that man is dominant over nature and can control nature, and uh, and this whole idea is such a dangerous concept. And and for uh, to understand that nature, number one, is is our 
uh, is our breadbasket. It's where, with, without, without the natural world, with the destruction of the natural world, obviously, we destroy ourselves. Um, but also uh, that you have to respect it, you know. Uh, there has to be, regardless of what we do out there, look, we all have to eat. We all have to eat uh, food in order to survive. And whether, wh- whether that's plants or whether that's animals, uh, animals eat plants. And if we eat the, if we eat the animal, we're, we're still dependent upon the plant. And we still have to have a fundamental respect for the life of that plant and the life of that animal, which gives us life. And. Uh, and, 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 and when you look at things in, in that particular way, you know, as a thou instead of as an it, for example, um, mm-hmm. you, you, th- those, those connections come back and things become more obvious and more apparent. But, but, for, but for children or adults who have never felt that or never had that connection, uh, it's really sort of uh, an ignorance is bliss sort of situation where they really, y- you don't miss it when you've never known it, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, we have this strong, just powerful plants out here, too, where we are on the Yosef Peninsula. Um, there's a, I just remember the case of a young woman who came down. She had a urinary tract infection. Her doctor had given her some, some pharmaceuticals and told her that she could travel. She came with her father for eight days, and the day that they got here, she was ready to leave because she was in so much pain. And her herbologist, Don Victorio, your man went up to the hill and got this medicine from this tree, uh-huh. barked this tree and boiled it, and she drank it two times, and the pain completely went away, and she was fine for those eight days. My God! And he, you know, unfortunately, that was just a kind of a band-aid because for her to totally have been healed from the urinary tract infection, she would have needed to stay about three months, or at least maybe you know, short, you know, we could have sent her some of the medications, but but Don Victoria said, oh get sick again later but I told her you know, if you get sick again if you want some of this bark you just let us know and we'll send it to you right. we haven't heard from her huh. ever since so we're, we're hoping that she's doing well that's another uh, you know another one of the challenges that, that we face that you face in a situation like that is you know is the uh, uh, is oh momentum I guess is a good word for it you know people uh, it's very easy to go out get excited about something and then when you get back into the quote unquote real world which is actually the illusionary world uh, but it's, it's, it, it seems that when people get back into that world and start having to worry again about the mortgage and the kids and the soccer game that they, uh, they tend to forget you know about what they did learn or what they did experience uh, so you got to keep it, mm-hmm. in, keep it, keep it out there on the front page, you know, and keep people talking about right. it. So, well, we all, pre- we all present. Who has its own set of challenges in this time, and whether it's paying the rent, mortgages, acquiring food, and life in and of itself is a challenging thing for everybody. Right. <clears throat> Even for the you know well-to-do, right. they got a different set of challenges than for the folks that got to grow their potatoes to survive. <laughs> right. But um, basically, one of the things that we learn in spiritual knowledge spiritual culture is how to concentrate ourselves and to do less oftentimes is to do more sometimes people they freak out because of the situations they have are too complicated complicated so they want to throw it away and look for something else or they get too wrapped up in too many things so a lot of the you know spending time with the elders or reading some of the books from about these people see how simple their lives are right. you know it helps us to get, get, get kind of create a reference point part of the <clears throat> the intention of the retreats we create down here at Guadalajara de Osa is to, 
to help people hopefully acquire a reference point, something they can reference back to once they're back in their homes in everyday life, so that they can little by little, you know, start directing their lives towards the place that they would want it to be, right. simplifying their lives, giving themselves more time to achieve the things that they truly feel that they need to achieve. And oftentimes, like to explore, like, you know, maybe not just here, but anywhere out in the wilderness peak or an experience in, in primary nature really helps us to achieve a, a ref, reference point as well within ourselves. And that in and of itself is really important. Couldn't agree more, Jonathan. So, all right. Well, um, we've got uh, we've got a few more minutes. If you, we've got maybe uh, maybe five to ten more minutes left. If you want to sort of wrap things up, we can talk about uh, anything you want to f- to finish things off. We'll, uh, why don't we mention again the uh, the website address? That is www.guariadeosa.com. G U A R I A D E O S A. Dot com, and um, my uh, my guest has been Jonathan Miller Weisberger, an incredible uh, young man who's doing some great work down there in the Amazon, and uh, um, uh, he's been telling you all about uh, uh, all the stuff that they're working on and 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 the uh, the potential for the future, which I think is incredible, Jonathan. I think th- I think you guys have a tremendous uh, future set up down there. So, well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, the center has really come together nice. It's a beautiful place. We have. Uh, that's the botanical gardens. Part of our intention is to introduce people to the different medicinal plants of the area, teach us some botany. We're right here on the Osa Peninsula, the world-famous Osa Peninsula. So, you know, you can't help but just absorb exquisite energy in the nature. The, the climate is about body temperature. <laughs> and the sun is really... Together, we offer promotional rates as well for group leaders who want to bring class down to maybe biological field experiences or yoga retreat, workshop leaders of any kind. would like to bring the, the, the group down. You can check that out on our website as well. Right. So we're just, just starting off. Basically, we've been building the place for five years. We just finished building the center pretty much where we have a few uh, really good promotional rate for 2005 that we're offering. So if anyone's interested, they can check that out. All right. You mentioned also that there are uh, there are some ocean uh, uh, adventures as well, dolphins and whales, and that's uh, sort of uh, um, the cetacean wildlife there. Uh, that's that's another incredible topic that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But but again, uh, highly beneficial experiences with those uh, with those creatures if people can get involved with that. So. Oh, yeah, I mean, the ocean out here is just pristine life. We went out the other day on a boat and came across a pod of well over two to 300 dolphins. Wow. It is phenomenal. There's fin whales, humpback whales, orcas come through now, all kinds of dolphins. And from the Kano Island out, there's actually blue whales, sperm whales even. Wow. They're really rare to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of the places where the whales from the, the northern population of humpback whales migrate all the way down to the Yosa Peninsula and the Gulf of Dulce. And the southern population of humpback whales migrate to the north. And this is like an inter, you know, basically a genetic breeding, breeding ground. Right. They, they, they mate here and they, they rear their cubs in the waters right here off the Yosa Peninsula. Incredible. So oftentimes they're seen with their cubs. Wow. Is there, a, is, there, is there a reef there, Jonathan? Is there diving and stuff going on there as well? Yeah, yeah, there is out on Kanyo Island. You can see it right here from where I'm standing. It's a 45 minute boat ride. It has some world class scuba diving. I, I have a, a dive license too, so I've 
sometimes I join friends or people want to go diving and go with them. There's a few professional dive outfitters here too as well. And then we saw a school of well over whew, five to five hundred or more barracuda, <laughs> giant dog snappers, all kinds of monterey's, white tip centaurs, extremely rich ocean life. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, like uh, like that part of the world is uh, is about as biodiverse as uh, as as exists right now. So uh, so uh, you picked a sounds like you picked a wonderful place uh, to locate Guaria de Osa, and uh, and I sure wish yeah, you. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Like I was mentioning too, you know, being in the balance point between North and South America, and close to both oceans, we really feel like it's an auspicious place, and just the center the way it's designed in and of itself. Anyone that looks at our website will see the photos. Is really a place to bring together the knowledge, the the, the time-tested aspects of the spiritual and cultural heritage of the Americas and of Asia, where we can bring this together with different cultural teachers and masters and share with our visiting guests all alongside the ocean and rainforest discovery and adventure that can take place too. Mm-hmm. So we feel that we're you know we have a unique. There are setting situations going on. Most of the hotels in the area dedicate themselves pretty much to basically ecotourism and visiting the ocean, visiting the forest. But we have this cultural element, and just the way the center has been set up and built too is really creates a place where people can come together, be together, but also retreat to have their individual privacy in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it really is pretty. You're more than welcome, Mike, to come down any time when you have the time to come. Visit and get away. Bring your son with you. Yep. Well, I'm going. To, I'm going to do it. You mark my words. I will be down there. I don't know when. I'm going to try to. Um, I'm actually. I'm actually going to try uh, for the February. Um, for the February event. I don't know if I can pull it off. Your mother's been all over oh, yeah? me trying to talk me into doing it. Um, but it's more of a personal thing uh, with my with my wife's uh, schedule. But um, if not, then I'm sure there'll be more uh, coming up in the future, and we're definitely going to yeah. make, make it down there. Hey, um, Jonathan, let's. Uh, we, we didn't talk. Uh, uh, too much yet about uh, politics and what's going. What's the political climate like down there right now? What uh, What's happening on, on a political level and at more of a you know more of the uh, administrational level? What's the response to the things that you guys are doing? Are they are are the are the indigenous peoples um, getting any traction or or are they still really really in deep deep trouble? Well, you know, basically, with, uh, when it comes to indigenous peoples, their work has been in Ecuador. Guadalajara is in Costa Rica. Right. Costa Rica has a whole different policy than Ecuador. And Costa Rica is a very small indigenous population, about 3%. And they're doing really good here. They got land. They get help from the government. But they're, they're also, you know, basically several generations removed from the, from the heart of their culture. Okay. In Ecuador, indigenous people, they, you know, they have t- uh, title to, to territories and to reinforced territories, but... The problem in Ecuador is the oil companies, basically, like the Wawarani, for example, <clears throat> a primitive indigenous tribe, you know, dealing with like not one, two, three, but like ten multinational oil companies building roads up left and right to their territory, giving them whatever they want, from watches to hats to clothes to sacks of rice to everything, machetes, whatever they want. The Wawarani are like the, mo- are the most gifted, probably, society on earth. I think they probably receive more gifts. They're anyone else are being exterminated, they're being culturally annihilated through gift giving. Right. It's like a and drug. It's really it's sad, they, like. Yeah. And um, you know, the, 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 also the other problem is now that the colonization has grown more and more colonists, the colonial mentality is just infiltrating everywhere. So the youth they don't have the courage 
to uh, really learn about the culture and live the culture anymore. And, I mean, to become a shaman, these elder shamans, they've had to go through extreme discipline. No one wants to do that anymore. Not as a doctor. They can just go out to town to get an injection. So, you know, the, the time of these, like, ancestral cultures is basically, unfortunately, really sadly leaving us. But there's many aspects of that that, that, that can help us a lot. And, you know, a lot of these are written in books and can be found in books, Master Nee's books and different texts. Text. But the indigenous peoples in Ecuador, you know, they're not going through the best of times. <clears throat> and uh, But, you know, I think they're a lot better off in Ecuador than other parts of the world. At least the government has gone out and given them territory. they got a lot of land. But, you know, now with the dollarization, basically the country's been dollarized in the year 2000. Jamil Mawad, he was, <laughs> he was thrown out of a military coup. There was a coup. Um, this guy, Lucio Gutierrez, with a bunch of different indigenous uh, federations were overthrew the government. But it only lasted like, uh, I think, five days, and then the vice president took over. <clears throat> now Lucio Gutierrez is actually the president of Ecuador, the same guy that did the military overthrow in year 2000. It happened on January 25th, year 2000. Wow. But um, Jamil Mawad dollarized the country, and it hasn't helped, I don't think, at all, because everything has just gone through the roof. More money. There's been like two, three thousand percent inflation. Oh my gosh! I mean, uh, just to put things in context, I used to organize these tours down to Ecuador. We still do once a year, and uh, the last year I did in 1999 in, Mar- in March of 99 to rent a bus from Quito down to the end of the road in Posaonda, way down in Ecuador and Amazon, and back round trip was three hundred dollars. In September of 99, it was. $900, and then in November of 99, I had to pay $1,800 for the same service. Oh, my God. This is one year. That was over one year. Right, right, right. On these properties that we're buying bordering Sangha National Park, the first one we bought in 1996, we paid $400 for 125 acres. About each property is about that size. Then the next one we bought, I think it was in 1998, we paid like 2000 and then just recently, we, well, I mean, it's still a pretty good deal, relatively, but we just paid uh, $13,000 for a 150-acre property. Wow. So that, uh, that so point, I mean, regardless of whether, whether it's still a deal or not, it's, still, it's gone up uh, many-fold. So. Yeah, we're talking two to 3,000% inflation. Right, right. So but what, what, in some regards, what it's done is it's, it's, it's gotten the people to be like kind of hold on more to their tradition, to their cultures, which is... A lot of it has to do with agriculture and being self-sufficient because people simply can't afford to buy anything anymore. So most, you know, the people in Ecuador, the country folks, the people in the city are the ones that are suffering hard because everything's going up more and more expensive and they they don't make any, you know, that much more money. Their, their, their wages, monthly wages aren't going up compared to the inflation, but the indigenous people, they're, they're relying more on their agriculture and you know, becoming in the self-sufficiency. Right, right. They just go back to the old ways, no problem. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Here in Costa Rica, Costa Rica is really a privileged country. It's kind of like the New Zealand of of the Americas. Hmm. Has no army. They've put a complete ban on on oil operations. There, there, there's a, a social guarantees. This, this president, actual president Abel Pacheco, we have it on our website. Good news from Costa Rica. Says <clears throat> he wrote this whole 
aspect and uh, amendment to the Constitution called environmental guarantees. They've banned logging, and uh, they, they've been reforesting you know, old pastures with huge amounts of timber, so they're growing timber, and they're working really hard and opening the doors to tourism, which brings you know all kinds of social change, but at the same time, at least it's an industry based on admiring nature, and they're right, trying right. to do it as sustainable as possible. Right, and you got to be, I mean, that's the, it's the best, like you say, it's the best way to educate people. you got to get them out there, and uh, you got to get them to see this stuff. And, and, if, and if one out of every hundred of them goes back and says, man, I really changed my life, you, you did your job, you know, so. Mm-hmm, there you go, yep. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, Jonathan, I think we're going to wrap things up here, but uh, I want to say uh, thanks again. Uh, we've been talking to Jonathan Miller Weisberger, an ethnobotanist and the steward of uh, a retreat on the Pacific coast, the Osa Peninsula of Costa Rica called Guaria de Osa, uh, what sounds like an absolute paradise. And um, for people who'd like more information on, uh, uh, on the retreat, you can go to www.guariadeosa.com. And I encourage everybody to go there and to uh, and to get involved and to get interested in this sort of stuff because this is the cutting edge of where things need to be going uh, as Jonathan and I have been talking about and dancing around uh, this whole uh, time we've been talking the uh, the connection to the natural world the relationship between human beings and the vegetable world, the plant kingdom, is uh, is a relationship that must be reestablished and 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 recognized if uh, if we're going to move on uh, into into a better future, in my opinion. And 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 Jonathan and, and the folks uh, at Guaria de Osa are really doing a lot of work to help do that. So so kudos uh, and my hats off to you, big time, Jonathan. And uh, I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I can't. Yeah, we got this retreat coming up. February 1st to 9th with Jeremy Narby and David Abrams, the author of Spell of the Sensuous, and David, Jeremy Narby is the author of The Cosmic Serpent. We have, we have a traditional Quechua Indian elder, shaman master from Ecuador with us. His son and his son's wife actually work at Guardia de Osa with me, Don Bartolo Aguinda, just a really beautiful, classic, really humble old-timer, just really fun to be around. So we invite anyone interested to check out our website. That's from the 1st to the 9th of February. It's undoubtedly going to be a great event. And then we have all sorts of other events coming up after that, too. And uh, Guadia, to remind you, means orchid. Orchid is a symbol of the freshness of nature. I really appreciate, Mike, uh, yeah, the no opportunity to be able to share what some of the experiences we've had here with the public on behalf of your radio show. And well, you're, you're more than welcome, Jonathan. And like I said uh, off the air, what I'd like to do, this, this was a good introduction to yourself and to what, uh, what you guys are trying to do down there. Hopefully we can, uh, we can continue to do this uh, on a regular basis every few months or whatever. We'll get you back on the air and we'll talk about uh, what's going on uh, down there and your progress and current events and all that sort of stuff. And um, uh, one, one of the, uh, it is a priority on my radio show to, to try to help uh, people keep uh, connecting with this stuff. So we're going to keep doing it. And and, um, and I'll also, uh, after I air this show, I'm not sure when we'll actually air this program. It'll probably be um, within two weeks. It might actually be on Christmas uh, Christmas night I might air this show. But uh, regardless, uh, as soon as I air it, within a day or two afterwards, I'll have it uploaded up onto the web. And uh, we can point uh, people there uh, from here to eternity, and they can listen to the interview with you and get information um, anytime they like. So, Great, great. We really appreciate it, Michael and uh I'll, I'll be thinking about more stuff, more specific stuff, too, we, we can share 
with a concerned, interested public for for the future talk shows that that you've invited me to. Yeah, we'll do. In. We'll do. We'll do that. And uh, for the for the for the people that are listening, I want everyone to know this was a this was a total uh, sort of a seat of our pants uh, uh, interview that we did here, Jonathan and I. This is the first time we've actually talked uh, because um, it's been a little bit. Uh, it, it's because of how isolated uh, Jonathan is down there. We've had to. Uh, I've been sort of communicating with him through his mom, who's in Berkeley, and uh, we've been uh, sort of uh, playing a little bit of tag here and there, and we were able to slip this interview in. So. Um, uh, considering that we we did it on real short notice, and Jonathan's sitting out there on the Pacific Ocean on a rock, and uh, uh, we uh, we didn't have a whole lot of time to plan. I think it actually went went wonderful, and we got a lot of a uh, lot of information. And the next time um, the next time we talk, we'll do uh, we'll, we'll 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 have a little bit uh, a little bit more to do. So uh, so I look forward right, to it, Jonathan. Well, the sun is finally set, and there's a moon that's waxing. It's a star-speckled night, and I'm sure anyone that comes down to visit our center will. Especially during the summer months between December and March, we'll never forget the environment here. It's truly superb. And once again, Mike, thanks a lot, and we'll be in touch then. Wonderful, Jonathan. All right, thanks. All right, uh, this is Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Uh, stick around uh, for Carol Greenspan and Jewish Spectrum. Hopefully, she can make it in here. The snow has fallen and the roads might be a little bit nasty. Carol, if you're coming in, hope you're being careful out there in the car. And um, uh, for everybody else, uh, tune in next week, same time, same place, 2 a.m. on Sunday morning for Radio Orbit. And uh, uh, we're going to have a great interview with Dr. Paul LaViolette. And uh, until then, have a great week. We'll leave you with a little bit of uh, music from The Birds. Not the birds, the birds, but a song about the birds. This is R.E.M., KOPN Radio Orbit. Thanks for listening. Yeah.